Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the Farm Podcast. That is the Farm Podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider sending up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month at the lowest tier. And for the upper tier... You get some added goodies, uh, some additional material that I put out each month in addition to our monthly Zoom party. So definitely give that some consideration as well. All right. I have got two guests joining me for this outing, both repeaters. The first one is no stranger to regular listeners of the farm. He is a frequent guest here as well as being my research partner and the author of a forthcoming work on the World Anti-Communist League, and he is one hell of a musician too, so check him out on Bandcamp as well, folks. I give you guys the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for dropping by again tonight, sir. Thank you, Recluse. It's good to be back on the farm. Yes, sir. All right. Also joining us is a researcher and another musician who's presently working on a biography concerning Feral House founder Adam Parfrey. He is also the chief force behind the experimental folk slash electronica outfit Corwin Trails. Folks, I give you guys the great Samuel Corwin, alias Samuel Vandevar. Thank you so much for driving by tonight, sir. Thanks for clues. Great to be here with you and Keith. Absolutely. And again, both of these guys are on Bandcamp, uh, Keith under his own name, Keith Allen Dennis, and Sam under Corwin Trails. So do check them out. They are both fabulous. All right. We've got a great show in store for y'all. Actually, this is the first installment of what will be at least a two-part series. The concept is simple competing notions of America's past. Over the decades, a variety of groups have tried to craft their own founding mythos for this nation. The Masons and the Mormons have done a lot in this regard. In more recent years, white nationalists and even some black ones have gotten in on the act, along with the usual suspects, i.e. occultists and other fringe types. Not to say that the white nationalists are not also fringe, but a different variety of fringe, I suppose. Anyway, this is an important and sadly little recognized subject because it cuts to the heart of who we are as a nation. The project was well underway even before the ink had dried on the Constitution. I had planned on opening up in the 19th century with an exploration of how the Masons and the Mormons have warped our view of the nation's past, but fate had other plans. On May 22nd, 2022, Peter Lamborn Wilson, most popularly known as Hakeem Bey, shed his mortal coil and presumably ascended to wherever the hell that he thought that he was going to. Bay is a figure 
I've followed for a while and felt compelled to weigh in on. You're going to hear a lot of glowing tributes to the man, probably many already. But here, we're going for more of a contrarian take, especially since Bay has been at the forefront of reshaping America's mythological past throughout the post-Cold War era. So, for this episode, we are going to tell you who Hakeem, Hakeem Bey really was and how he tried to reimagine our past. It's my show, so I'm up first. My contribution, uh, contributions are a few elements of Bay's pre-80s counterculture activities that are significant and little addressed. So, here goes. All right, now, typically, when people start outlining Hakeem Bey's story, they start with his conversion to Moorish science while studying at Columbia University during the early 1960s. <clears throat> it's a good starting point, actually, but everyone focuses on the wrong stuff. Moorish science is what gets everybody's attention, and it is interesting, no doubt. And certainly, more will be said of it as we progress through this show. But the more interesting thing is that Bay back when he was just Peter Lamborn Wilson, was attending Columbia. Now, if you listen to the first installment in the Farm's Secret History of the Gifted program on Patreon, you will immediately grasp the significance of this. Here's a hint. There were a lot of people on the campus linked to gifted schooling and pedophilia throughout the 1950s and throughout the early 1960s on that campus right around the time Bay starts attending there. Bay would later end up in Nambla with one such individual who was working on the campus during the 1950s. No one ever seems to have asked Bay about this, however, nor whether he was a gifted kid, which would be interesting to know. But in William S. Burroughs versus the Quran, Michael Mohammed Knight, a former acolyte of Bay's, implies that he started Columbia around 62 or 63. His Bay was born in 43. That raises the possibility that he started before turning 18, strongly implying that he was in some kind of accelerated program. So it's one thing about Bay that deserves more attention than it gets. The next big milestone in the life and times of Mr. Bay that... Uh, does get addressed, but frequently for the wrong reasons. So, after dropping out of Columbia, Bay ends up at upstate New York, at Millbrook, where he followed Timothy Leary for a time. Millbrook was a happening place at the time. Besides Leary, future members of outfits like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and the Finders were also making the scene. But probably no one was more suspect than the estate's owner, William Mellon Hitchcock. Mr. Billy, as he was known by Larry's people in the help, was a member of the storied Mellon family of Pittsburgh. I also believe on the Hitchcock side, he might have been a member of the hereditary uh, founders of the Society of Cincinnati, but I have not been able to confirm that just yet. But certainly an interesting lineage nonetheless, and the Society of Cincinnati did play a considerable role in setting up Pittsburgh as well, but I digress. Anyway, besides being one of the wealthy and most powerful families in the history of the nation, the Mellons have long-standing links to the U.S. national security state. 
Christopher Mellon, the big UFO whistleblower present, spent years working on the Senate Intelligence Committee and on information operations. Nobody ever seems to point that out. At the Pentagon, for instance. Mr. Billy seems like he was part of the family tradition. Earlier in the decade, he spent a lot of time, oh, this is the 1960s, by the way, when I say earlier in the decade, kids, he spent a lot of time in London, where he started shared a flat with a curious figure known as Thomas Corbley. Corbley was a former military intelligence officer turned private detective and sometimes mafioso. He was close to Donald Trump's longtime attorney and political mentor, Roy Cohn. Corbley was also implicated in multi, multiple VIP sex rings over the course of his life. While in London, both he and Mr. Billy became involved in the Perfumo scandal. As I detailed in my book, A Special Relationship, Trump Upstein, the Secret History of the American Establishment, this scandal not only brought down the British government at the time, but it may have played into a crucial, crucial role in the JFK assassination as well. A point that is often overlooked. Anyway, just a few years later, Mr. Billy returns to the family estate at Millbrook where he sets up Leary's acid commune. It is in this milieu Hakeem Bay finds himself before he leaves the United States for an extended period of time. Supposedly, he is spurred by the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., which puts him on a plane to Lebanon in 1968. <clears throat> He bounces around India and Pakistan for a time, like many of his generation. It was during this time that he allegedly discovers Sufism. By the mid-1970s, he settles upon an interesting destination, Iran. At the time, it was still a U.S.-slash-U.K. vassal state in the grips of the Shah. Bay originally found work there as a journalist for the Tehran Journal while investigating more mystical versions of Sufism. It was during this time that he encountered the teachings of Swiss mystic Fritz Joy Shalon. Uh, Suan. Suan. We'll go with Suan. Okay. Suan. Okay. Suan was one of the linchpins of the post-World War II traditionalist movements. Like his one-time collaborator, René Ganon, he embraced Sufism. However, he found Ganon's obsession with maintaining the exterior of devout Muslim taxing. Uh, he definitely liked his wisdom, folks. And um, his women, I should say. And began embracing more mystical approaches. It also... Um, Gave him, a, uh, I believe, ability to uh, break his vows of celibacy and marriage quite frequently as well. Anyway, famed French scholar Henry Corbin was one of the biggest supporters of Shuan's teachings. During the 1940s, Corbin relocated to Iran, where he began promoting Shuan among the intellectia. Inter interestingly, a lot of Corbin's work was funded by Paul Mellon, another scion of the Pittsburgh dynasty. The Mellons were involved in oil and had their share of holdings in Iran throughout the Shah's reign there. Corbin's links to the Mellons no doubt opened doors at the highest levels. His influence led to the creation in 1974 of a philosophical institute in Tehran called the Imperial Iranian Academy of Philosophy. 
It was tasked with unearthing the intellectual treasures, quote unquote, of philosophy and mysticism in Islamic and pre-Islamic Persia. This outfit came about in an interesting time. By 1974, the Shah was on his last leg. The regime was now being destabilized by the fundamentalist Shiaism the monarchy had promoted as a counter to the socialism that had initially uh, driven the Shah from power and then led to his restoration in 1953. By the late 1960s, the fundamentalists held uh, the Shah in contempt, essentially, rightly seeing him as a patsy for the libertine West. The Imperial Institute appears to have been an attempt to set up a counterweight to the fundamentalists by pushing a kind of pre-Islamic Persian nationalism. Unfortunately, it was too little too late, and the regime was toppled in 1979. So Hakim Bey worked for the academy for about three years and had some choice assignments. From 1975 till 78, he was the chief editor for the academy's in-house journal, Sophia Pernice. He was also a consultant in both London and Tehran for the World Islamic Festival in 1975. In 1978, the Academy published Bay's Kings of Love, his history of the Nematoya Sophie Order. Bay was vacationing in Spain during the early 1979 when the Shah's regime was formally toppled. Needless to say, he didn't go back to Iran. Instead, he returned to the U.S. While previously finding the atmosphere in the U.S. suffocating during the 1960s, he was now about to return in the midst of Reaganism. Not long after making his way back to the States, Bay revived the Moorish Orthodox Church. It was during this point that he became involved with the milieu commonly referred to as wandering bishops. One in particular took a shine to the Moorish Church. He was a bishop named Michael Itkin, an endlessly fascinating figure. Itkin's apostolic line of succession included a bishop called Christopher Maria Stanley. Stanley was both a member of the American Orthodox Catholic Church, which featured a young Peter Lavinda as a priest, and a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John, an outfit linked to domestic terrorism for decades in the United States. Stanley is also who famously consecrated JFK assassination suspect and arch-pedophile David Ferry to boot, and apparently Itkin. Itkin was knee-deep in his own controversies. As Moria Grayerlin recounts in The Last Closet, both Itkin and other priests linked to him were deeply implicated in pedophilia in the Bay Area during the 1980s. Apparently, right around the time Hakeem Bay's outfit started swapping consecrations with Itkin's church, Thus, Hakim Bey was probably in the same apostolic line of succession as Stanley. Okay, so one final point I'm going to make here before shutting up. At some point during the 1980s, Bey became involved with an outfit called the Formless Ocean Group, or FOG. This was an informal circle based out of the Bay slash Santa Cruz area during this time frame. It featured people like Robert Anton Wilson and the McKenna brothers. For our purposes here, though, two of the most interesting members were Joseph Metheny and Nick Herbert. It was these two men, along with Bay, 
who were generally credited with launching Ong's hat during the 19 or late 1980s. This is considered by many to be the first alternate reality game or ARG. And if you've been listening to the podcast for the last few years, I shouldn't have to tell you how significant that is. ARGs have been have played a profound role in shaping America's culture in the 21st century, to put it mildly. Actually, Bay played a shockingly large role in this as well, as we shall see. And with that, it's time for me to pass the mic. So first off, I wanted to ask you guys about the influence Bay had on both of you personally. You both kind of came of age with his writings and so forth. So uh, Samuel, why don't you start us off, sir? Sure. Um, well, I think I came upon his infamous manifesto, um, Taz, or Temporary Autonomous Zone, uh, sometime in the early 2000s, um, must have been my sophomore year of college in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I remember reading that book and was just um, pretty shell-shocked. I mean, um, being a manifesto, it, it is uh, chock full of uh, kind of anarchist style call to arms. Um, there's all kinds of um, ways he encourages, um, you know, various modes of aesthetic terrorism using art as a form of terrorism. Um, and the, the book was so influential to me that I kind of passed it around to friends. Um, the book had a kind of potency that I, I felt certain friends, you know, who were um, similar seekers like myself might appreciate. And so, um, yeah, they, they read it as well. And we all kind of caught the fire from this book. Um, uh, we were all disenchanted with college at the time and uh, were, were definitely, um, you know, angsty, disgruntled um, young adults looking for something more. And, and this book did really seem to offer it, at, at least at first. Uh, and the book was so influential that we, I, I, won't, I won't say we formed, like there was never kind of an official um, group that was made, but um, we did kind of get together and think of ways um, to kind of shake things up in, in our local area. And, um, there was one of us who was a bit more um, idealistic and he, he thought that um, the main enemy to attack was the banks. Um, to him, you know, if you control the money, uh, you control everything. And, and so, you know, he, he went big with, with his first action and, and he took, uh, he planned one night um, to throw bricks through a bank window and he did just that. And I'll never forget, I, I was sleeping at home and he came, we were living together at the time. And he woke me up and said, Sam, I, I just, uh, I threw a brick through a bank and he was freaking out obviously. And uh, it, it was pretty intense, you know, there was a moment when um, the kind of excitement of, of what we were reading in that book became real, but it also became terrifying. Um, yeah, because of course our first thought was, did anyone see you? Are, are you gonna get caught? I mean, this was right after 9-11, mind you. And so this kind of action would be seen as probably, you know, like literal terrorism. And even though our aims were very different, um, 
Yeah, so I remember seeing it in the local paper, you know, um, anonymous person throws brick through a bank, uh, no motive, although I think he might have, he might have written something on the brick. And, and I think they even published that it was some kind of line from Taz. But um, that's just a little anecdote to show you how influential this book was to, to me and, and a couple friends. Uh, needless to say, we all dropped out of college and and headed west to to attend Burning Man in 2007. I mean, I mean, this book was formative in many ways. I, I think, you know, growing up in an isolated conservative Christian town, going to Ann Arbor, which you know has its own radical history, and then discovering a text like Taz, um, yeah, really kind of. Um, blew my mind open as that compared in conjunction with psychedelic use as well. And um, yeah, Hakeem Bay, you know, was, was kind of a prophet um, I would say in the underground and the counterculture, Um, not just to, to me and my friends, but to many people. Um, And, you know, it's only years, years later that you, you kind of start to learn the seedier aspects of, of, um what choices he made with his anarchism (laughs) um anyway you know i i his writing though didn't lose its potency i I continued to follow him throughout the years uh i got really into his poetry he's published dozens of books of poetry and uh i i was quite um a poet myself for a while and, and appreciated his style um but yeah you know um the older you get, the, the more you start to um, come to terms with, you know, um, I, just the folly of youth. And, you know, I, I now look on, on the kind of radical action uh, I did in those times as a kind of uh, reaction um, against maybe certain ways I was raised, you know, as opposed to this, you um, um, you know, noble cause uh, of, uh, of resistance, right? Because um, I'm, I'm and I, I don't want to give off the impression that I've, I've lost all hope to resist things that do deserve resisting. But I, I think, yeah, th- there's a lot of um, subterfuge in the counterculture and in the subculture, and, and there's false prophets that are kind of propped up um, who who don't really have noble intentions and, and who who may be uh, pithy and, and may have a way with words, but um, yeah, it's worth digging a bit deeper to to see what's behind that. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I I would say you know for a number of years I had a kind of cognitive dissonance in trying to separate the art from the artist. You know, once I learned about Hawking Bay slash Peter Lamborn Wilson's um, unrepentant uh, pedophilia. And uh, yeah, I mean, the more you learn about, the more distasteful it becomes. And uh, at some point, yeah, you, you, you can't really separate the art from the artist. Um, that, yeah, and, and, and then, you know, after, and then moving forward, it kind of calls his whole uh, oeuvre into question, you know, it, and, and I had to kind of, yeah, think back at, and as to why I was drawn to such a person, how I was drawn to such a person, and why such a person was was propped up, 
you know, to have such monumental influence, even, even though, you know, he's considered fringe, he's considered um, uh, an outsider uh, in many respects, that's not really true. I mean, um, yeah, Taz was so famous, you know, it, it became, well, Burning Man, I would say it was a direct lineage of Taz and also um, more recently Chaz, um, at, you know, in, in Seattle, Cap Capitol Hill. So, I mean, it's not, it's not really fringe. Um, it just uh, is meant to be perceived as fringe to, to get extra cool points. Uh, so I, I could go on. I mean, there's more, I mean, we'll get into more stuff, but I'll, I'll, I'll pass the mic at this point. As well said, Samuel. All right, so Keith, uh, what's your initial hot take on Mr. Bay and his influence on you? Well, you know, thanks for setting it up with the introduction. And, you know, you said fate had other plans because the, the man just passed away last month, right? So it's kind of like an obituary that we kind of put together. You know, like you said, fate had plans, other plans. So, um, yeah. You know, for me, like the the influence, uh, <clears throat> this would be the late '90s that I, uh, you know, discovered his writings when I first got on the internet. And it was a, I think it was a website, whale.to, that's kind of still around, but it was something else back then. But it was whale.to had all of his stuff on it, you know, and it, and it was kind of adjacent to Discordian stuff robert anton wilson you know that it wouldn't be uncommon to see you know they're kind of in the same milieu uh right or wrong you know what i mean some of the same adherence or uh readers readership overlaps there but uh yeah man i went on a hakeem bay kick in the late 90s to you know 2000 2001 i think uh and i and i reconnected with some of that over this last week because we were going to be doing this. So I, I went back and reread a bunch of his essays, found interviews that he'd done on camera. I'd never known, never, you know, I kind of, I kind of went through my Hakeem Bay phase like 20 something years ago. Right. So it's like, I haven't really thought about him a whole lot since, you know, for years. So it's been a trip down memory lane and there's a, there's a lot more books that he wrote that I didn't realize. And I read several, uh, Peter Lamborn, Wilson and Hakeem Bay books. And I have a couple of them still, but, you know, he wrote a lot more books. He did interviews. He did an album where readings from the Taz, maybe the whole thing. I don't know. were uh, set to music that I listened to some of it. And, you know, I think it made me smarter, like checking his stuff out and reading it. I mean, this sounds really cringy to say, but oh, well, whatever it was. I was young, but, you know, he, he was unapologetically stuffing text into text parentheses dash clause resume the sentence you know he was like a rant manifesto master and he had this idea of palimpest which is like medieval text you know you didn't have enough parchment so you're kind of writing on top of older stuff uh he he, he kind of wove that into his writing almost and uh anyway so there'd be this concept or this author or philosopher or thinker that you could then go look up because you don't know what the hell he's talking about 
you know and then so you just you just wind up learning a lot about who these different people that he's referencing are and it can just kind of go out from there it's very expansive writing in that way but also very expansive in that he just really stimulated the imagination all that stuff you were talking about sam <laughs> brick through a bank with a an incantation from the occult book uh temporary autonomous zone and other of Hakeem Bey's writings, like the occult assault on institutions is one of his, you know, writings that's talking about leaving voodoo dolls at state parks uh, or giving somebody some crazy handcrafted present from an anonymous source that they, you know, give it to somebody in the media, tell them they're cursed because they're contributing to the the worldwide planetary work machine culture of sameness and separation that's killing our souls. You know, all that stuff you're talking about is like uh, the anecdotes, you're, the brick through the bank. It's, you know, it wasn't just theory, but it was also practice. He's telling you you should go do all this stuff. And it's like an anarchist cookbook for the mind. You know, his, his writings were like an anarchist cookbook for the mind. And, and clearly it worked on you and your friends, I, you know, uh, my own experiences are, you know, neither here nor there and I'll neither confirm nor deny, but yeah, uh, similar inspiration there. Um, I had, I've read a bunch of his books, uh, his Jubilee Saints project gave me kind of a millennial bug since this was the nineties after all. And, uh, leading up to 2000, there was, you know, it was kind of, young and the optimistic sort of years of the 90s you know in 2000 coming up in the y2k and everything it was maybe a, a possibly misplaced <laughs> youthful optimism that uh hakeem bay's writings sort of fed into a little bit in the millennial sense um jubilee saints was you know basically it's 500 years since christopher columbus there needs to be an elimination of debt and a jubilee, you know, as restoration and reparations, Christopher Columbus, you know, destroying, you know, setting, lighting the fuse on the new world. You know, uh, I nominated, you know, they were taking nominations and I am pretty sure I nominated George Washington Carver uh, to be a jubilee saint. I kind of had a crush on him at the time. Uh, but anyway, I think reading Hakeem Bay improved my reading and writing really you know vocabulary just for reasons i just said um yeah uh i mean what else his uh you know my songwriting and my lyrics and some some of my early songs uh that no one is going to ever hear <laughs> had some hakeem bay influence that book gone to croatan um there's some essays about Columbus in there because, you know, this is around the 500th anniversary. So there were some writings from indigenous people and, you know, Mexican people about what, you know, Christopher Columbus meant 500 years later, you know, that's in that book. That was really inspirational to me. I, in 2002, I wrote a song about Christopher Columbus with some imagery that's borrowed from that book. That's one that somebody might hear, but anyway, his writings, I don't know if you guys, you guys might be too young for, uh, for this, but, you know, there was this thing, Adbusters. Uh, I remember, you that. know, yeah, it was the idea was culture jamming. And it was sort of a, 
a more chill, less Nambla <laughs> version of some Hakeem Bay shit, you know, where you're, you're, you're hacking, you're messing with uh, the culture, you know, skirmishing with it, pulling off little hacks. There was a, a thing that I think Negative Land, that experimental awesome group is involved with called RT Mark that was kind of like a clearinghouse for culture jamming stuff and people would like sponsor it or something. This again was a very long time ago. Hakeem Bay's stuff like the Assault on a Cult Institutions essay where he has all these ideas that I was referring to. It just kind of reminds me of the RT Mark or or Adbusters, but I'm really probably insulting Hakeem Bay by comparing him to Adbusters, but there's a there's something that just reminds me of it. Um, you know, we'll talk about that book, Gone to Croatan, um, the subtitle of which is The Origins of North American Dropout Culture. I hope we can talk about that more. I don't want to take up too much time, but um, that book was especially dear to me. I still have my copy uh, almost 25 years later. It's it's like a it's just it was it was a holy book to me in my in my younger years, you know, because of the radical reimagining of America's past, its racial past, its class past, you know, it's it's it would be a good companion book to something like uh, how uh, uh, Zen's. Um, people's history of the United States, it would be a good book to put next to that on the shelf. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about it some more, but that, you know, that radical reimagining of America's past was something that, you know, was, was dear to me in my younger years. And uh, it led to all kinds of, you know, weird stuff. I've read a bunch of his books. I've read some, some of the Peter Lamborn Wilson stuff too. He's clearly like a genius, you know, mm-hmm. You know, he he wrote about weird heretical strains of Islam and about the assassins in a book I think it's called Scandal. I've read probably four or five books that he wrote or wrote for, but then I find out there's you know so much more than what I knew, right? So anyway, he he very much celebrated syncretism and and combining things. He was very kind of postmodern like that, and he kind of got associated with cyber culture in some ways that he never accepted and never got why, you know, he's like, I think once capitalism gets a hold of th- this internet, which <laughs> fucking already has, I mean, you know, <laughs> from, from the get go, you know, it's not going to be some liberating force. You're not going to have a Taz or a temporary autonomous zone. I just heard him say in an interview a little while ago, you're not going to have a temporary autonomous zone on the internet. Cause your body isn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole point, the whole point to a lot of his stuff was, you know, this, we've been atomized and divorced from our culture, divorced from meaning and divorced from our bodies and our own desires. And so your body isn't present in cyberspace. So you're really only going to limp your way to anything through it is the way he felt. But, um, but anyway, he was a master heretic as a syncretist, they're, they can kind of be the same thing. Uh, but, you know, and, 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 and along those lines, those old Hakeem Bay essays, you can read them like chaos magic texts, you know, not liturgy per se, but philosophy, like, like anarchist cookbook for the mind. Like I said, not just theory, 
like I said, but practice, you know, with spitballing all these ideas, you know, can I, can I read you a quote from one of his things just to, is that all right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Is an essay, one of his little manifestos called mail order mysticism. And I'll quote from it. Mail order mysticism may sound like a joke to the serious orthodox traditional or academic expert in religion and to the professional gurus whose work consists of personality monopoly and psychological authoritarianism. But the Moorish Orthodox church takes it seriously. There's something magical about the mail voices from the unseen documents as amulets, something very American, democratic and self-reliant mysterious urban folklore old ads for Amork in crumbling yellow magazines, hoodoo catalogs, dream books, ancient spirits of places intersecting with modern communications networks that are placeless, spooky, and abstract. And the mail itself now seems antique, a lost modernity, 19th century sepia, violet ink, a fitting medium for the transmission of secrets. He's talking about, you know, mail order mysticism. I actually have an old Aimwork uh, sort of brochure that I found somewhere in a used book, and I've hung on to that. It's the kind of thing they would mail you back in the day if you're, you know, you're kind of interested in it and you get on their mailing list. Uh, anyway, um, I, you know, I can leave it there. But before I, I'm done, I kind of, if you don't mind, Recluse, this, this wandering bishop thing, you know, you mentioned uh, having been consecrated by michael itkin who had been consecrated by christopher maria stanley right so that guy i've just looked up this you know i have this encyclopedia of cults sects and new religions i think it's called and it talks about hugh george de wilmot newman being the guy who brought this old splinter church in Europe called the Catholic, the, the old Catholic church to America. And this guy uh, to Wilmot Newman is the guy that really got the practice of consecration seeking and consecration swapping going. Uh, he got that going amongst kind of the esoteric independent churches like his in the United States. So this, you know, I think it's interesting digression and i won't make it long but you know because hakeem bay i mean he, he, that's part of the story right so anyway quote newman was known for introducing the practice amongst the autonomous bishops of seeking numerous consecrations he was convinced that the reconsecrations could legitimize an otherwise inconsiderable ecclesiastical jurisdiction through which the embodiment of a wide variety of lines of apostolic succession which could lead to the formation of the ecumenical church so it was Wilmot Newman who directed Stanley to consecrate Itkin in the first place, according to what I've read. You know, uh, Itkin and, and Michael Itkin was regarded as like a sort of a social justice warrior, but like for real, like um, strident gay rights activist. Uh, you know, he's regarded as a hero by some in the, in the LGBT community as like a pioneer in what they used to call the gay church movement of the 50s and 60s. I don't know how much of this you knew, uh, Reclus. You probably do, of course. But anyway, it can, right, not long after he got his consecration from Christopher Maria Stanley, he, it can consecrated a woman because he believed that they should be able to be bishops or priests. I mean, um, 
and and that led to that was the beginning of a split with Stanley and and Ikin's social activism in general was was a little too hot for them. But that's kind of a, just a real quick story of the succession that that led to to Michael Itkin, um, who's in this story. Anyway, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up about it. I just wanted to add that because of your introduction. Yeah, no, the uh, the wandering bishop angle is definitely one of the more fascinating aspects of Akeem's, uh, Akeem Bey's whole story. And I mean, certainly it brings in a lot of um, very interesting uh, characters, to put it mildly. You, you know, can, can I can I say one more thing about that? Even though I just went off on a little mini rant about it, like I don't think necessarily that you you should one should make too much out of that anyway, because not because it's not significant, but because Hakeem Bay was seeking and getting all kinds of initiation experiences for decades, from Hindu yogis on the hashish trail in Nepal or whatever to you know Sufi stuff you, you know um he's got a little three-page thing in uh the adam parfrey book apocalypse culture that's called instructions for the kali yuga where he was talking about being in india with a flood that had killed tens of thousands of people and turned into a cholera epidemic and a lot of people died and their bodies were being burned and this is when he got initiated into you know basically what uh Callie's mysteries you know by some mm -hmm. people you know out there so like he was doing that kind of stuff his whole life so the wandering bishop thing comes pretty late for him in the 80s right and it was he was unique in that he, he traded in that kind of thing he, he was a lifelong seeker into all of that well, no doubt, but uh, also as well, what you're, uh, you know, if you uh, listen to the uh, first installment in the uh, Gifted uh, Program uh, series in the uh, Patreon section, you would know that there was another specific bishop in the apostolic line of succession involving him and Itkin, uh, who was also active in the Bay Area and in Namblum at the same time, which makes that connection a little bit different. Uh, than some of the other ones I oh, sure. mentioned. <laughs> so there's a lot more to him being a wandering bishop and specifically that apostolic line of succession uh, than what I've gotten into in this. But yeah. uh, it's, uh, I think, a lot more significant, though, than a lot of people realize. There's just not enough talk about all that, in my opinion. So yeah, we, no. we had an excuse, and, and thanks thank you for letting me digress about it for a minute because lo and behold that's part of the story man they those wandering bishops they sure they sure wander you know they sure get around right yeah they get around the namble <laughs> certainly they do indeed all right so or how about uh autonomedia they uh, had long-standing ties to the publishing outfit so what about that sam um well, yeah, I mean, he, he was very, very much there at the start of it. Um, and while never the publisher, I know he was um, kind of constantly the, um, the one um, gathering books. And also um, he published a lot with Autonomedia. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're one of the premier leftist, leftist anarchist publishers. And um, 
I would say, yeah, a lot of the stuff he released on Autonomedia was was as Hakim Bey, um, because you know he 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 made it was clever in a way. All of his very kind of radical manifesto type uh, writings uh, he released under Hakim Bey um, with Autonomedia, and then you know as Peter Lamborn Wilson, he wrote and published more um, pseudo academic works. Um, you know, he, it, it was, it made it, yeah, it made for a kind of interesting distinction in his character. Um, but yeah, Tana Media was, was very much um, more so radical and um, yeah, anarchist leftist leaning pu um, publication. So. Keith, I know you've had a lot of experiences with this publisher over the years. Do you got any thoughts on this one, bro? Well, in the sense that I read a bunch of their books or that they'd published, I, I, when I went through my Hakeem Bay kick, you know, I didn't stop with him. I perused a good deal more of their catalog. So, you know, Peter Lamborn Wilson's pirate utopias, a book of retranslations of old Testament texts called the unholy Bible, where they sort of, the translators were independent and not beholden to any ecclesiastical authority and could take whatever poetic license with the, uh, the original text that the church fathers no doubt did as well. And uh, the result is a slim volume of things like the book of Job and Jeremiah or Isaiah. Um, the Hakim Bay, I think might've written the introduction to that. Don't quote me on that. Uh, John Zerzan's, Future Primitive, a book that's a manifesto against uh, civilization itself. And like, you know, it, it all went downhill with the domestication of animals, you know, kind of. Uh, that, that was John Zerzan's anarchist anarchism, you know, just radical primitivism. That guy was active up in Oregon, possibly living in a tree. I have no idea, but uh, I hey. liked the book at the time. Go ahead, man. Well, I, I just a quick anecdote. I got to meet him um, with Adam. I, I did a road trip with Adam um, wow. up, up and down the Oregon Washington coast, and we stopped in Eugene to see John. And I was half expecting, you know, this kind of ramshackle cabin with no electricity. And you know, surprisingly, it was <laughs> um, a pretty, you know, residential, not not suburban. I mean, you know, it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it had his his kind of. Um, uh, primitive taste in there although yeah he cooked his own pizza for us and we drank wine I think there was a fire you know so so th there was a taste of the primitive but one thing really shocked me I remember the next day Adam and I were getting supplies in the grocery store for our road trip and we ran into John Zerzan there after staying there like just totally randomly then later the next day and he was buying like a box of Jiffy cake mix, which I, I just felt was so out of place for an anarcho-primitivist to be buying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for that. It's cool. I mean, you know, people, if I've mentioned that guy's name, nobody knows who he is. So thanks for being the guy that did. So cool. Um, but, uh, you know, Peter Lamborn Wilson wrote a book called uh, Plowing the Clouds, a search for Irish Selma that I read. I don't remember if that was Autonomedia. That might not have been, but, uh, What's the other one? Oh, of course, Taz. Mm -hmm. I had the Jubilee Saints calendar for like 1998 or something. 
what else what else there's at least one more in there somewhere but maybe his book scandal no that was an autonomy media anyway another autonomy media book i got later on was a uh, dreamer of the day francis parker yaki and the post-war fascist international which i read in 2014 and then again last year and you know going back to what you're saying um uh sam about um not knowing the the whole context of people when you're reading them and then you find out later you know it's like a dude turned out kevin coogan was in the larouche movement for a minute you know mm -hmm. it was actually the guy hylozoic hedgehog the whole time which you know interesting which was a kind of a sort of a call it a don diligent of the larouche group if you will mm -hmm. you know wrote wrote under an anonymous name. anyway i didn't know any of that when I first read those books, I didn't know any of this Nambla shit about Hakeem Bay back in the day. But, you know, as for the whole culture or whatever of the of that that publishing company, I really don't have much idea. I didn't at the time, but I sure read several of their books over a couple of years, period. Uh, real quick. So that was that was on par for you were talking about, Sam, that you were doing the road trip with. You want to uh, real quick get into the uh, the kind of a relationship that Feral House had with the Autonomy Media? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can go into Adam and Peter's relationship and I do think it kind of informed, um, the kind of, uh, parallel, but, but very different, um, uh, career arcs of, of autonomy and feral house, because it did kind of occur oddly right after Adam and Peter's, um, fall from grace or, or falling out. Um, do you want me to get into that? Sure. So um, and when Adam lived in New York City in the 1980s, um, in the Lower East Side, you know, it, it was it was a pretty bombed out neighborhood at the time. And but it was also popular with a lot of um, outsider artists, um, avant garde artists. And naturally, you know, that the scene being small, um, Adam got to meet Peter. And I and Adam said that uh, Peter was his pot dealer. And so um, they struck up a friendship and Adam had just at the time um, published Apocalypse Culture, included uh, Hakim Bey's uh, instructions for the Kali Yuga. And Adam and Peter got to talking and um, they were going to do another book called uh, Rants and Incendiary Tracks, which um, was, yeah, basically a, a collection of... Um, crackpot rants and manifestos, I think from, from the 16th century to present, um, kind of running the gamut. Um, there, there was kind of no limit to what they would include as long as it, it was extreme and, uh, you know, polemical. And so um, they're gathering material and Adam, <laughs> Peter starts sending stuff to Adam and basically all of it is um, pro pedophilia. And Adam, Adam, you know, uh, being Adam was willing to maybe accept a piece or two about it, but it was essentially all that Peter was uh, contributing. <laughs> and so um, Adam, Adam didn't want to do that. And um, Peter got pretty upset by that. And, and yeah, they exchanged a few angry letters. I, I have scans of those uh, actually, which will be in the book. Um, but uh, interestingly, and as a kind of, um, yeah, ironic joke. Adam included um, one of Peter's rants against Adam, which actually was in the temporary autonomous zone. 
um, at the very end, let's see, I have it here. Um, yeah, it, it's come unique number five and it's titled intellectual SNM is the fascism of the eighties. The avant-garde eats shit and likes it. And, uh, um, let's see, I'll try to just read the highlights here, but, um, at the end, he thanks Adam exit which uh, is a clear reference to Adam because at the time Adam was also publishing Exit Magazine. Um, and here he's kind of drawing a line be behind the, um, between the kind of ontological anarchism, which is way more optimistic as Keith alluded to than what Adam was doing, which um, yeah, if, if you're familiar with Adam's work, it was very dark, very cynical, um, transgressive. Um, and, and Peter found that to be uh distasteful I, I guess let's say but um i guess i'll quote from it here just a little bit um the purveyors of pointless gloom are the death squads of contemporary aesthetics and we are the quote-unquote disappeared ones their make-believe ballroom of occult third reich bric-a-brac and child murder attracts the manipulators of the spectacle Death looks better on TV than life, and we chaos who preach an insurrectionary joy are edged out toward silence. Um, needless to say, we reject all censorship by church and state, but after the revolution, we would be willing to take the individual and personal responsibility for burning all the death squad, death squad snuff art crap and running them out of, uh, running them out of town. Um, my space has room neither for Jesus and his Lord, Lords of the Flies, nor for Charles Manson and his literary admirers. I want no mundane police. I want no cosmic axe murderers either. No TV chainsaw massacres, no sensitive post-structuralist novels about necrophilia, which is a clear reference to apocalypse culture. Um, so, yeah, you know, calling, here, himself, calling himself a coyote. Yes. Identifying with that in there is really interesting because that's, you know, this is the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of your golden age coming out party of like chaos magic and stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right. I think, yeah, wasn't yeah. the tagline for um, Taz, chaos never died? I think that that's the one line that kind of always um, gets quoted as its kind of emblem. Um, yeah. Uh, he also but, said the empire never began. So, yeah, right, right. Two sides of the same. I'll just quote one more line from this um, because it's revealing and it, it's and it's so subtle and yet not so subtle. Um, here's a clear kind of admission of of his pedophilia right here. So here we go. Um, we live in a society which advertises its costliest commodities with images of death and mutilation beaming them direct to the reptilian back brain of the millions through alpha wave generating carcinogenic reality warping devices. <laughs> While certain images of life, parentheses, such as our favorite, a child masturbating, are banned and punished with incredible ferocity. So there it is. I mean, th this, this essay is so wordy, so verbose that you can just read right past that admission. <laughs> Um, or, or if you grew up on uh, beat poets like Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs and stuff, you might have been desensitized to it because it's like all those guys are like that. That was my experience because I liked William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg when I was younger. I saw Allen Ginsberg read Howl in Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. by the way. 
Oh wow! In like '94. Oh, uh, crazy! And, yeah. So anyway, uh, that's another thing. You know, you blow right past it because it's like kind of normal in a certain the beat subculture in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we were talking before we started recording um, on the back cover of Taz are our glowing reviews from uh, I think Robert Anton Wilson calls him a Blake Angel on Bad Acid and both William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg give him glowing reviews. So it's like he was signal boosted by all of the right people. You know, it was it was kind well, of a, yeah. basically here's our next profit. Um and, and uh, he had the right proclivities that he shared with with both of them. I mean, yeah. uh, Ginsburg was quite effusive about his love for boys. The way you would say it was uh, had a gleeful, uh, lusty quality in his poetry when he read it. And um, it's, yeah, yeah. And I also think it's not a secret that that's half the reason they went um, to the East because they could get away with it. Oh yeah, it. in Tangiers. I mean, that was basically a big part of what uh, Burroughs' pilgrimage was there. And um, obviously Negative yeah, Lunch was kind of based off of those experiences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they all have that in common. And it, and it is interesting that, that Hakim Bey was passed the torch from those same people, you know. It's kind of another interesting aspect of his um, Iranian soldier and it's never really... Uh, considered but I mean certainly you know if you know um, Sufism there there is a certain tradition in that uh, also involving young boys as well so um, yeah uh, so oh, anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that's the uh, you know the secret the secret sauce of Aryan culture is, <laughs> sorry it's, it's uh, growth but, yeah anyway mm-hmm. Before we get into some other stuff here, like Sam, real quick, did you want to get into um, Hakeem Bey's income real quick? This is another aspect about him that not a lot of people are aware of. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, reading him growing up, you think he's this, um, you know, vagabond uh, gypsy who's who's just kind of, you know, um, scrounging um, from well, not paycheck to paycheck because he doesn't work, but, you know, it is kind of a mystery. It's like, where does his money come from and how the fuck does he get to travel all over the world? Um, you know, he, he has um, books and essays about being in pretty much any country you can imagine. And in a recent book he published, um, which is called uh, The New Nihilism, which, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll still say it. I find his, his writing fascinating. And um even knowing what I know about him, um, you know, uh, he does make some good points. But anyway, the, there's some strangely autobiographical um, uh, anecdotes in here. And I'll, I'll just read from a little bit that goes into his, his family history, which he, I don't think he had done before. Um, so let's see. Now, as Nietzsche said somewhere, one cannot understand disease unless one has been sick. Hopefully one recovers. This is the essential Nietzschean position, to have been sick and to have gotten better. Um, Otherwise, there can only be resentment, bad conscience, mass slavishness. I was born middle class. Let me not dissemble. There were white trash connections in my family, and there were aristocratic pretensions in some branches, which I find to be really fascinating. Also on this note, I, I just saw somewhere he called Robert Anton Wilson a distant cousin. Which you know may or may not be true, but you know the two were very close. Um, 
Holy schmoly. And he wrote a eulogy for Robert Anton Wilson when he died. So, you know, that's, I just got to throw that in there. Um, but I, I find it in, you know, he says middle class, but then alludes to having aristocratic pretensions. Um, but then he says, uh, both my parents were college educated, wage, wage slaves, professional educators, Democrats, liberals. If I failed to make the grade, if I dropped out of my Ivy League university, if I refused to work, if I devoted my life to art, if I never made any money, but lived off unearned income, basically my father's savings. So, I mean, right there, it's an admission that he had a trust fund that he was probably just pulling from. <laughs> um, so to call it, you know, the, the whole thing of, of him um, feigning anarchism, I, I mean, he was privileged to do so. That's the reality. Yeah, um, you could buy a lot of Jiffy cake mix with a trust fund, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, in this in this same book, he alludes to meeting kind of like... Um, millionaire queer poets in Ireland and all these countries that funded his his journeys um which I guess good on you if you can find rich people to to fund your shit but I don't know you know he he kind of um unabashedly refers to himself as a freeloader lots of times you know and uh I just yeah it's interesting to to kind of boast about your your privileged uh status so to speak um but yeah at the end he says did it did I succeed or wait, hold, hold on. Uh, he said, I never made any, so let's see. If I identified as a bohemian, an outsider, an anarchist, it was all in an attempt to escape being bourgeois. Did I succeed? I can't say for sure. All I know is I hate the bourgeoisie. Maybe that makes me self-hating, like the famous mythical beast, the self-hating Jew. I'd rather claim to be a true bohemian, a lump and prole criminal poet, but someone else will have to judge. And since almost all my friends are in fact middle-class, who will judge justly? So, I mean, quite quite a few admissions in that little paragraph there. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Another uh, aspect as well that uh, is not really, really uh, considered very much by his fans. <clears throat> mm -hmm. All right, so um, if you've been listening to The Farm of Lake, you know I've been uh, especially fascinated by Wisconsin. So... Uh, my attention was definitely uh, perked when uh, Sam had brought this to my attention. So uh, Hakeem Bey had another publishing house that he worked with, uh, which is not addressed very often and which I am not going to attempt to pronounce. <laughs> and it happens to be linked to a commune in Wisconsin called the Dreamtime Village. So anyway, uh, I was hoping you could give the audience a little bit of detail about this, Sam. Um. Well, sure. Dreamtime Village is a kind of um, commune collective um, in West Lima, Wisconsin. I I only knew about it because I, I picked up a hitchhiker. I mean, this is just such a random um, synchronicity, but he um, knew two people who kind of lived on and off in that commune and had a personal anecdote of meeting um Peter Lamborn Wilson there, there was like a special gathering. He described it as being very creepy. It, he, he kind of alluded it to it being a kind of um, pagan uh, festival or celebration. And Peter Lamborn Wilson, of course, was playing the chieftain as he was wont to do. And he just described the whole affair as very cult-like. And as everyone there kind of, um, yeah, looking at, at Peter with admiration and, and hanging on his every word. He said there was a bonfire and Peter just kind of ranted and everyone just gawked at him. 
<laughs> and so, yeah, I looked more into it after that. And um, yeah, they have a publishing house called Zizoxial, um, X-E-X-O-X, uh, I-A-L, and they've published most of his poetry, which is where I came across those books. Um, they're not too well known. It's a smaller press, and so I don't think they printed too many, but yeah, Stephen, you and I were kind of looking into it, and it is interesting. They advertise on the website that they've attracted hundreds, hundreds of um, vagabonds and um, essentially lost boys, <laughs> You know, so um, who knows what really went on there. I know that Peter was a regular guest um, and um, probably liked the, um, the uh, you know, lost boys uh, um, going there to, to get yeah, food. Or, or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he liked the selection, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. <clears throat> a lot about this that's really interesting. This is like located in um, a region that's known as the Driftless Area which also encompasses uh, parts of uh, Iowa, um, Minnesota, and I believe just a slither maybe of Illinois. Uh, but it's reputed to have a lot of high strangers there. I believe there are no less than three towns in Wisconsin in the dreamless, uh, excuse me, driftless area that claim to be the UFO capital, uh, not just of Wisconsin or the United States, but of the entire world. Okay, so anyway, in the specific area that the Dreamtime Village is in, as I um, am going to explore in an extended essay on the uh, farm's Patreon here that will hopefully be up uh, roughly around the same time that this is out, a lot of very interesting people have uh, passed through uh, this particular area uh, over the years, especially like in the last uh, four or so decades, of course, Dreamtime Village have been active, uh, I want to say for about since 1991, if I remember correctly. So about 35 or so years now, give or take <clears throat> um, a little less than that. But anyway, going back to the 70s, um, <clears throat> there's a spot that's I want to say about an hour from us, Lima, uh, called Devil's Lake which I've covered on a couple of prior podcasts here. As uh, some of you may recall, during the 1970s, a uh, wandering bishop by the name of Michael Bertrio was bringing a lot of uh, Lovecraft follower, um, let's just say Lovecraft fans out in a, uh, a coven or whatever that was known as what the, the cult of the deep ones or the blood. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But anyway... The purpose was, was to go to Devil's Lake and to try and open a portal uh, for the Lovecraftian old ones to enter through it into our world. Uh, I know Keith was alluding to other earlier about, uh, you know, Bay's ability to blend a lot of these different ideologies and so forth. And it's really fascinating that you see Bertrio. I mean, of course, he had his whole... Uh, Voodoo Gnostic approach. I mean, of course... Uh, at least I've been told that it has about as uh, much to do with authentic voodooism as um, voodoo as uh, gosh, like what uh, Santeria, I suppose, would with Anglicanism or something like that. You know, um, it's just yeah. It was pretty much a total something that uh, Bertrio. I mean, is probably really just confabulated or. Uh, 
taken from ascended masters or something and a um teachings of don juan kind of way or something like that who knows but uh regardless i mean yeah it's really fascinating that you had those two particular characters um operating in this you know rather uh, royal and remote region of wisconsin and uh be assured they were not the only ones there and certainly not the only ones who have um contributed their own peculiar mythos to this nation especially a uh very modern and contemporary mythos uh kind of those uh roadside attractions that keith was alluding to and no, no, no. Mm, yes samuel well I, I just have to say real quick back to the dream line dream time you mentioned driftless and, and that, that was like ringing bells and I, I i suddenly realized at the Dreamtime village they built a town park called the Driftless Grotto of West Lima, which is a shrine to the Driftless region. <laughs> it sounds about right. Um, this is fascinating, yeah. Another interesting thing about this, too, is this, you know, this whole area, like, around where Dreamtime Village is, and then also kind of getting into, like, the Devil's Lake area, smack dab in the middle of the... Um, one of the big spots for one of the groups that they write about and go into Croatan, um, the, the descendants of the French Canadian trappers who, um, you know, like uh, intermarried with the Native Americans. The Metis. Yes, the Metis. The Metis yes, yes, yes. This whole area was a big region for the Metis, too. There were a couple of uh, towns nearby that had been founded by the Metis in this like whole region. So, you know, we'll get to this a little bit like a, a while. But yeah, there was um, a lot of interesting stuff about this area. And of course, it also had quite a considerable amount of um, Native American mounds, too. That's another thing I'm going to get into. But uh, a lot of these areas, you find these these Native American mounds that uh, show up and that has led to a lot of ongoing battles for what they mean. As uh, We'll get into more in uh, the second installment of this as we get into the 19th century. Inevitably, we need to talk about Namblum for a moment and Bay's involvement. How about the opening page of the, the Taz book, for an example, right? Yeah, what, what does that say? Something about naked Iowa farm boys. It's some poem that it's, I, I can't remember, but that line stuck out. You know, I remembered it recently. Like, oh, yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. Once you start noticing, you know, I mean, um, so I'll just read the quotes I have in front of me, which are all from Taz, by the way, his, his most popular work, <laughs> interestingly. Um, you know, so he had all kinds of um, uh, ideas for praxis or, or political action. And, you know, one was paste up in public places, a Xerox flyer, photo of a beautiful 12-year-old boy naked and masturbating, clearly titled The Face of God. So, like, th this is very bizarre. He's, like, instructing people to kind of spread a pro-pedophilia message and masking it as, as kind of an anarchist, uh, you know, anti-state uh, tactic. I mean, it's very bizarre. This, this quote shocked me. This next one, if anyone here is familiar with Jason Horsley and his book, uh, Prisoner of Infinity, um excellent excellent book. excellent book oh my such, god such a good book i just finished it and uh 
you know, the main thesis, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do a um, cliff notes here real quick, is that um, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, just just real quick, like Whitley Strieber is his case study. And rather than him having actual abduction experiences, um, Jason kind of reexamines his childhood um, when where Whitley mentions all kinds of, um, you know, uh, uh, well, gifted program. schools, mind control yeah. programs, um, you know, uh, MK Ultra style abuse. And Jason's um, thesis is that the abduction experiences are actually a kind of screen memory um, that prevents Whitley from, uh, you know, encountering that tr first traumatic um, episode, which is mind control, sex abuse. I mean, you name it. And uh, I just find it interesting that. Um, there is kind of a passage in Taz that alludes almost directly to this idea. So I'll read it. Somewhere boys dream that extraterrestrials will come to rescue them from their families, perhaps vaporizing their parents with some alien ray in the process. Oh, well, space pirate kidnap plot uncovered, quote unquote, alien unmasked as Shiite fanatic queer poet. UFO seen over Pine Barrens. Lost boys will leave Earth, claim so-called prophet of chaos, Hawking Bay. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll read just another one that's also from Taz. Um, he, he doesn't hide anything. Runaway boys, mess and disorder, ecstasy and sloth, skinny dipping, child, childhood as permanent insurrection, collection of frogs, snails, leaves, pissing in the moonlight, 11, 12, 13, old enough to seize back control of one's own history from parents, school, welfare, TV. Come live with us in the barrens. We'll cultivate a local brand of seedless rope to finance our luxuries in contemplation of summer's alchemy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really everywhere, um, but you know, previous to Taz, as, as Stephen mentions, he was, you know, um, writing directly for a publication like NAMBLA, um, trying to openly support um, boy loving pedophilia, you name it. On um, Hakeem Bey's uh, connection to NAMBLA, he had written for the NAMBLA Bulletin on uh, a few instances and it also had quite a bit of his uh poetry published uh in namblum uh, over the years as well there's a few pieces what is it a uh, missia ambrosia bay described the tiny rectum sweet as a brown buttercup of a boy not quite seven in the eroticism of bano architecture set in a gas station restroom the object of Bay's affection is an uncircumcised, ejaculating 10-year-old. In Magician Child, he fantasizes about sharing a sleeping bag with eight-year-old runaway Joey, who warns, quote, you better not let me drink too much pop. The indulging anarcho-Sufi, of course, gives the boy as much to drink as he wants, and Joey ends up wetting himself at night. The poem's narrator then brings Joey's urine-soaked pajama pants to his own face to inhale the scent. Uh, this is from William S. Burroughs versus the Quran by Michael Muhammad Knight, by the way. In my political beliefs, continuing from Michael Muhammad Knight, Bay writes of a man watching an eight-year-old anarchist in a bathtub. Bay narrates that the boy plays with himself while, quote, one of his parents clamps down the hall, I suppose to make sure neither of us is raping the other. In Suburban Shocker, Satanic Youth, Cult Exposed, Bay describes an 11-year-old anarcho 
Satanist as my peacock angel, Prince of Dark Jinn, a reference to the Yazdi religious minority of Iraq. If I can be this fantastic Tao head worshiper. Oh, that's just wonderful, isn't it, guys? Oh, it's, You're really giving me a bad day here, man. It's, uh, uh, it gets better. Uh, as poetic... Oh, no, that's not the part I was looking for here. Um, uh, here we go. Continuing from Michael Muhammad Knight here. Bay explains in full meaning only uh, for only Nambla readers in a December 1986 piece titled The Face of God which turns hysteria over child pornography into religious intolerance. Some religions, this is uh, Bay's writing here, some religions are persecuted because their sacrament is illegal. Our religion is illegal because our entire form of worship is a crime. Mere possession of this icon of our faith in some states could earn you several years in prison. Perhaps you better burn this document before reading further. When the police decide what is not religion, what is not art, what is not love, then love and art and religion all must become crimes. We believe this to be a photograph of God manifesting the ophanically in human form according to the teachings of an 11th century Persian who first taught God's embodiment in beautiful boys. Whenever he and his followers saw a lovely face, they prostrated themselves. He asserted that whoever knows God in this way is relieved of all interdictions and prohibitions and can allow himself all the delight, all that he delights in. All right, so this was in regards to a Xerox of a flyer photo of a beautiful 12-year-old boy naked and masturbating, clearly titled The Face of God. So that's his uh, contribution to Nampla, The Face of God. I mean, essentially, he turns it into a religion, a kind of theology, which is... Yeah, and he tries to, you know, essentially use Sufism to justify it to boot. When I looked looked up uh, his writings, I knew I knew that they were on a website called Hermetic.com that uh, has a bunch of occult stuff on there, and so a bunch of his essays I read this last week, as I as I said, and uh, and one of them was called Boundary Violations, and it's up there, and he basically in so many words describes himself as a what the kids call a map you know these days and uh is is likening it to like you said racism or you're you're automatically an abuser and you're you know everybody's an abuser everything is abuse um it just seemed like a bitter kind of rant against people not agreeing that he's you know should just be able to do that (laughs) you know that's up there that that just belongs in his collection of of essays i guess along with his uh poetry such as it is thank you very much recluse ear bleach right yeah trigger warning i mean what's (laughs) what's seriously bizarre about it is in his mind he's probably saving you know the children from their kind of conservative parents and giving them their first taste of of um you know anarchic uh yeah ecstasy like that's what's ultra bizarre is he probably sees himself as the good guy here well clearly yeah he sees himself as the good guy uh yeah it's uh clearly um 
some Peter Pan bullshit. Yeah, yeah, rationalizing, yeah, exactly. Rationalizing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, let's talk about something a little uh, different <laughs> for the moment and for the time being now. Um, okay. So, getting into Bay's extensive counterculture influence, uh, Sam, tell us a bit uh, more about the temporary autonomous zones and their later influence on things like Burning Man, Occupy Wall Street, Chaz, and all that good stuff. Sure. I've, yeah. Well, we've gone over quite a bit of it, but yeah, kind of in summation, the temporary autonomous zone is a kind of imaginal time and space that um, anyone can conceive of anywhere at any time. And um, absolutely anything can happen in that zone as long as, you know, church and state, um, as long as their prying eyes stay out. And so it, it was conceived of as this kind of imaginal um, world that, that, yeah, kind of facilitated absolute freedom. And, you know, it could be as simple as a dinner party with you and your friends, uh, and it could be as kind of um, bombastic and elaborate as, as something like Burning Man. I think he's more skeptical of, of kind of large scale uh, implementations of the Taz. I, I think he he kind of prefers the the dinner gather the dinner gathering or or something of that sort. Um, you know, and and the idea of it is it's it's temporary. It's not meant to last. Nothing lasts. Um, this idea of impermanence, and um, yeah, that that everything is ephemeral and fades away, and, and then you will cultivate more temporary autonomous zones as you as you move on. I, I think he then adapted the the phrase to be periodic temporary or sorry periodic um, autonomous zones or seasonal autonomous zones, something that happens cyclically. Um, but yeah, the idea was it, it went viral essentially. And um, yeah, like I said, Burning Man was a direct outgrowth of this idea. And yeah, it was and Burning Man itself is hugely influential to um, a whole a whole kind of culture, very psychedelic, um, strangely very um, uh, kind of into technology. Um, nowadays, you know, they have what do they call it? Silicon Valley Row, Millionaire Row um, at Burning Man. So, but you know, I went there two years, and it's quite a trip. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it was starting to get too big when I went. It was two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, but also genuinely um, fascinating and awe-inspiring. You know, to, I just love deserts, first of all, and to be in this vast expanse of a, a dried lake bed um, with all kinds of psychedelic um, art all over the place. I mean, it was, it, was, it was hilarious. It was terrifying at times. It was, um, yeah, I mean, you walk away with, from it um, being a completely different person. The thing about it, though, is it's, it's almost harder to reintegrate into the world after. And uh, in hindsight, I could see how going to Burning Man, you know, might really kind of alienate you from the world. <laughs> because yes, you do have revelations there. You, you have, I'm mean, of course, for you psychedelics and that sort of thing. But yeah, reintegrating after that kind of experience becomes very difficult. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's just a small example of, well, rather big example of the influence of, of his ideas in that piece. 
millions of deadheads are nodding their heads in agreement <laughs> with you right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's my sense of it. And yeah, nothing else he wrote really had that that kind of power. I would say that Taz did. Oh, another thing that made Taz so influential and, and the reason it spread so quickly is it had an anti-copyright. And so anyone could print it, anyone could publish it. And it really did spread like wildfire. I mean, it came out in, in the days of zines and um, well, Adam Parfrey, for example, reprinted um, an essay in his apocalypse culture, you know, and, and that sold, I think, I, yeah, almost a hundred thousand copies. So, I mean, yeah, his his ideas were were very influential, and um, yeah, like we said, he he was the kind of new, newly ordained prophet in the line of the beat poets um, like uh, Ginsberg and Burroughs. Brian Gisson is another one I, I'd bring up. Um, all these kind of uh, outsider artists, poets, um, who often have a predilection for young boys. So the beats, the beatniks. Yes, the beatniks. You know, Julia Savola really liked those guys. He really liked Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. In his new book, The New Nihilism, he actually, right. in a strange way, apologizes for the traditionalists, even though he tries to situate himself against them. He actually sees eye to eye with them on a lot of things. Um, oh, he so. did spend, you know, I mean, almost half a decade uh, working at an academy oriented towards their philosophy. Uh, oh, completely. I don't think well, you could have found it too objectable. And Sophia Perennis, he was an editor for that. That's kind of one of the foremost traditionalists. I mean, I know you mentioned this, but you know, it's a traditionalist journal or publishing company that you can get. You know, he, <clears throat> the guy that he followed, Fritz Off Schuon, um, was the longest lived of the original first generation traditionalists. Second mm-hmm. place was Evola, you know. Right. Uh, I think he died in 91, Shuan, or it might have been 89 or somewhere around that pocket. But um, he was in that guy's – that guy started a Sufi order, the Shuan guy. Um, he was a traditionalist, obviously, like I said. Uh, you know, he had a split with Rene Gainon earlier on about being too fixated on the esoteric side of things. Um, Gainon was more, you know, uh, the rank and file parishioners. And, you know, the best way to be a traditionalist is just take your butt to church. Okay. You know, if you're, if you follow in tradition, then go to church, you know, and the esoteric fish can't survive without the water of the exoteric church to swim in. Mm-hmm. And each one of those rivers, Islam, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, whatever, you know, are uh, their traditions in their own right. And they could be re- they should be respected and taken as they are, because that's supposed to be the essence of traditionalism. So that's sort of perennialism. That, and then there's sort of a universal monad behind all of them there's a oneness that they all kind of lead to but you don't get to that oneness by cherry picking and mixing them all up and playing this theosophical uh blender game Mm -hmm. with tradition 
that would be more universalism or syncretism. And so there was kind of tension in the, in the, the traditionalists between which, which way was the better way to go. And Shuan definitely fell on the heretical syncretic side. He got uh, enamored with the book Black Elk Speaks earlier on and he just kind of got it in his head that he was just super into native american you know spirituality or whatever he winds up going to the united states touring montana and the dakotas he gets inducted into the sioux indian tribe with his wife you know they go to a sun dance they don't participate in it but um and he winds up moving shuan to bloomington indiana or Illinois, whichever one it is, Bloomington, right? Um, and he kind of starts his ashram there. And he's got his Sufi order, which I can tell you the name of it. It starts with a Mary. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I'll, I'll Maybe I'll see it, but uh, Mara, Maramiya order. So Hakim Bey was a member of Shuan's uh, Sufi order in the mid to late seventies during the time that he was with that Academy in Persia during the time that he was an editor of the, you know, kind of standard bearer recognized traditionalist publishing company. He had a real background in that stuff, but it definitely was more on the shoe on side and not on the gay and non side. In fact, he, he was sort of a follower of the guy, but mm-hmm. uh, anyway, shoe on later on, really got into the more weird esoteric stuff and he got into this he got into this whole uh indian cosplay thing i'm sorry i shouldn't i should be more respectful or something i I don't know but uh he had like a sioux medicine man that was there with him and he kind of had his thing going on and so he had this muslim order uh and they were muslim muslims they were traditionalists of the maybe perennial variety they were sufis and they had regular normal Muslim religious observances and they had their Sufi stuff and uh, Shuan's group kind of grew away from them more and kind of not looked down on them, but it just wasn't, he had this whole other thing, you know, this Indian days or red Indian days or something where it would be like a festival and there's drumming and there's dancing and everybody's naked. And, you know, there's some younger people that are there girls and, Shuan gets brought up on charges of, you know, indecency at these very public festivals. I guess we'd hug these girls and maybe their naughty bits would touch or whatever. It's just kind of gross, but they they never could. um, They indicted him, but they couldn't convict him. You know, this was in the late 80s. So anyway, this was, you know, was Hakeem Bey's uh, foray into traditionalism. That was the guy. And then a lot of that stuff happened later after I think Bay maybe had had moved back into the Moorish science direction. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I read a lot of this stuff today uh, out of a book by a guy named Mark Sedgwick uh, called Against the Modern World. And it's kind of a history of the traditionalist movement. And uh, yeah, and it's just interesting to put all that in context. I'll because I'll say like, you know, there's a certain forum that I read from time to time that, you know, had this Twitter thread condensed into a, a post that was kind of an essay. 
and it was called the illusion of progress. And it was kind of a Catholic traditionalist conservative politically critique that was based around Notre Dame burning in what was it? 2018 or 19, whatever it was. And, you know, and it was talking about the modern world and it, you know, but he kind of had his right wing talking points in it too and stuff. But at the same time, it read like it could have been Hakeem Bay writings. The critique had a lot of similarities. The person that penned those critiques probably might chafe at the idea of being compared to Hakeem Bay. But yet, you know, I just read this this week while I've been brushing up on my Hakeem Bay and it, they really, seems like it could have been written by the guy my point is some of the critiques of uh Hakeem Bay that he makes in some of his manifestos when you know a, a little bit about traditionalism I'm not like an expert okay but I know some things about it I've read some gain on I have some get on books and Evola books and I've read some things anyway uh when you when you have eyes to see it you can see the traditionalist uh strata in you know a man's work that was he was obviously much more than just that, but he did really um, live his life that way, you know, for a while. And it, it informed his work uh, for a while, not a small while. It was a while. So it, it's interesting. I, I don't really hear. It sounds like you're saying one of these books, he's talking about his defense of the traditionalists or his, his love hate with them or something. No, I mean, I, there's a quote here where he, he says very directly, speaking about his time in Iran, he says, naturally, as a hippie, I considered this decadent traditionalism to be really radical, and I wanted to immerse myself in it. So, yeah, I mean, there it is right there. And, and you're right. I mean, you, you can, for, for as kind of, for as much as he tries to come off as an anarchist, um, you know, anti-authorian, I, I think it's really bizarre that, I mean, it's essentially anti-modern which is also right. a very traditionalist position, you know? You know what else is traditionalist position? If, if that Nambla shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, you know, right. how do they separate the men from the boys in old Greece? You know, it was with, with a crowbar, you know? Interesting, the, yeah. Yeah, uh, sorry. So yeah, that, mm -hmm. but you know, anyway, all right, let's uh, let's shift gears here and consider how Bay has attempted to reimagine history to justify things like Taz. I know we've already been kind of alluding to this. Um, should point out to Michael uh, Muhammad Knight uh, points out in his bio of uh, Bay that he was uh, a fan of uh, what was it uh, literary forges and hoaxes. Uh, something to keep in mind as we get into this section. All right, Keith, a work you have a long-standing relationship with that you've uh, mentioned at a few points throughout this chat is going to Croatan, Origins of North American Dropout Culture. So what is the mythos this work is trying to put forth and how does it support Bay's ideology? Well, um, I, I think maybe Bay's ideology is probably a really slippery, multifaceted thing. Um, but I think freedom and liberation, you know, liberation, anarchism is, is, is probably, you know, the, the, the fortune cookie version. Right. So that this book gone to Croatan of all, there's a whole bunch of chapters, a whole bunch of, uh, different contributors to it. And Peter Lamborn Wilson did two of those contributions. The only other person was somebody named Gail something that came in with two 
pieces in the work, but it was well over a dozen, I think. Native Americans, uh, that Metis group you're talking about, um, that's a Canadian version in a way similar to the Arcadian Cajun people, you know, Creole. It's a mixture of all the people that didn't fit into the gridded off, you know, Freemasonic age of reason. Let's make everything into a grid and rationalize it and maximize our invisible hand, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, so people are getting pushed out that don't fit into that throughout American history and on the margins of American law and order, American culture, American history, of course, you know, there's kind of this churning wave that's out at the, the edge of that wave pushing from East to West. So it talks about tri-racial isolate communities um, that are descended from, you know, African, various native American you know, white people of various backgrounds, Irish people, you know, forming their own tribes. Like the Algonquin was kind of a, a reorganized confederation of, of tribes previously uh, or nations that have been scattered and, and dealt a bad hand from colonialism or whatever. The Seminoles were definitely um, such a group, you know, and uh, a lot of the slaves that were brought over were Muslim. Um, there was a very big centuries old, very well-established um, <clears throat> Islamic presence in West Africa, you know, obviously for hundreds and hundreds of years by that point. So a lot of the people that came over uh, were, were brought over, excuse me. Um, were of that persuasion and so you know some of the roots of uh, uh, black nationalism can be traced through some of that reorganizing themselves into churches and what would you know become like the nation of Islam they say in this book uh, came out of something called the Ben Ishmael Ben Ishmael son of Ishmael tribe that was one of these kind of tri-racial isolate groups they lived in wagons and they kind of had a Roma, gypsy, whatever uh, sort of flavor to, you know, and kind of a nomadic triangular circuit around the upper Midwest, south of the Great Lakes around Kankakee is one point in the triangle. And there's towns in the Midwest with names like Mecca and Medina and stuff that are, you know, they say are you know, part of this, right? It's just one example. There's also essays about Christopher Columbus because uh, it was the 500th anniversary of 1492 to 1992. It was kind of around the time the book was coming out. So there's a lot of remembrances from Native American, you know, people. I'm painting a whole bunch of different pictures. There's, there's a lot to the book. There's poetry. There's really kick-ass artwork. I think it's James Conlon, K-O-K-H-O-E-N-L-I-N-E. I don't know how you say it, Conlon. Um, collage work that's just really powerful, you know. So it's a book that's a whole lot bigger than Peter Lamborn Wilson or, or Hawking Bay. But one thing that it does is it revive it gives voice to, you know, some some people whose voices had been kind of ignored by mainstream history, 
and creates it's the, the part that jibes with the Hakeem Bay thing is just your imagination goes wild with it. You know, it's a whole different imagination of or a, a whole different rendering of sides of American history that that open up different possibilities to j- just to read them and witness them. You know what I mean? So it was really influential on on me. And uh, I still have a copy. I had like 25 years. I think that's probably good. Yeah. Opening, uh, opening up spaces for imagining different realities and different um, ways that America could be and has been is, you know, part of what I got from that book. And I love that about the book. Now I'm done. Now, one of the things, I mean, is uh, it possible that the whole Ben Ishmael tribe thing was a literary hoax, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, that I, I, I've never heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. It's just and, interesting uh, because, I mean, I had been uh, I wondered if you would ever like look down at anything because there are quite a few citations that are attached to it. But I was like kind of wondering uh, if uh, you had ever checked into any of them, like how uh, legitimate they were. Uh, no, no, it's been a very long time. I haven't really thought about that book for a long time until very recently. I'm sitting here looking at it. But, you know, again, you learn things later. I guess I'm learning something now and it doesn't. Surprise yeah, me at yeah, all. I was just I, one of the things that stood out to me when I read it was the dedication at the beginning by that James Conlin guy you were talking about. It says, um. <clears throat> In 1989, as a librarian stealing time from my own research, I was deeply involved in an attempt to recover and untangle the spiritual roots of the Moorish Orthodox Church. I had recently been installed in the Adept Chamber of Third Paradise by the mysterious Hakim Bey, so this was serious church business. Har, har, har. Har, har, har isn't in there. I just added that, by the way. Um, One day, while puzzling over lost traces, a book fell into my hands. Of course it did. And it Oh, and it opened to an essay by Professor Hugo Prosper Leeming, which appears in the present volume. Sensing the presence of an angel beside me, I searched the OCLC database and found a few scattered copies of Leeming's doctoral dissertation centered around Chicago. The phone book gave me his address. Not long after, I had the pleasure of attending services at the Reverend Doctor's Church. This Unitarian Universalist minister had not delivered a sermon since he suffered a stroke several years earlier. Proudly wearing the fez of the Moorish Science Temple, he stood before us, a pale-skinned man of tri-racial Chikachamonui Indian stock, and delivered his moving sermon, My African Ancestry. In honor of Professor Hugo Prosper Leeming Bay and his hidden Americans, I wrote a lodge legend for an imaginary fraternal order carrying on the spiritual traditions of the great dismal, dismal maroons. These maroons also found their way into Peter Lamborn Wilson's essay in this book. Working through the entity known as the Tonino Media Collective, we have brought this book together. Leeming is a man with a mission, a mission we hope we have furthered by this best shrift in his honor. Now hear the call to meet the hidden otherhood and track the utopian trace with tendrils of light are entwined in the text of our otherwise dreary inheritance. 
So uh, to put yeah. some further context into this, this came out in 1991, no, 93, excuse me. And uh, this would have been right after um, Ong's hat had started to go on. That was, of course, the uh, alternate reality game uh, that I had mentioned before. And it's really interesting to me because, you know, um, <clears throat> for those of you unfamiliar with Ong's hand, there were Ong's hat. There were a couple of um, different tracks published um, about it. And one of the more interesting ones was a kind of catalog, an Ong's hat catalog with a um, list of books and other items that you could sh theoretically procure it was like you know one of those old school mail order catalogs that you would get with zines and stuff like that i'm sure you guys remember that so anyway on this mail catalog, order mysticism mm -hmm, mail order mysticism there you go it was very church of the subgenius not naturally so anyway like in this you know catalog there were a lot of books in there that were actually like real books uh, and then there were some other ones that were just total fictitious fabrications. And then in some cases, I think there were like a work attributed to Nick Hubbard, uh, who was one of the other co-creators that hadn't actually been published at the time or something like that. So it was kind of a mind fuck in that sense. And I get uh, from like going over this extensive essay that, um, that I, was it the James Cronline guy or whatever wrote uh, for the Ben Ishmael tribe. I Oh, no, 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 excuse me. It was by Professor Hugo P. Lemming. Uh, okay, so I, I get the sense the Hugo P. Lemming essay might have been something along those lines. I'm guessing a fair amount of the uh, citations, some of them might be real and legit, and some of the other ones are just totally made up. Uh, and Interesting. So yeah. You yeah. know, I, I looked up Hugo Prosper Lemming, not minus the bay, one time in a newspaper archive website and uh found this little blurb from some paper in the late 50s or maybe early 60s where he was giving some kind of sermon on um anti-communism hmm. uh, uh, uh. no kidding yeah no, it's it's just really fascinating. And I mean, just in general, how there's been this sort of effort to build up this kind of mythos around the Great Lakes area, because it really went back to Moorish science. I mean, of course, it, it originated, I think, in Newark, New Jersey. But I mean, it really uh, caught on in the Great Lakes area. I mean, the major hub was in Chicago and um, the other big one was in Detroit. Uh, there was also a pretty active movement in Milwaukee, too, naturally, in Wisconsin. So that kind of like whole area was like so central to the initial Moorish science movement. And it just kind of seems like afterwards Bay became so obsessed with um, further adding on to like a mythos around that like region. <clears throat> it's really fascinating. Yeah. And you better to do it. I mean, the man was uh, well-equipped and uh, then you read some Hakeem Bay manifestos about, you know, ontological terrorism and the occult assault on institutions. And then you then look at what are, from what you're saying, you know, just kind of spun up, you know, and to some degree and to make it, to make it work. And it's, it's the same thing Hakeem Bay is prescribing, but on a much bigger and much more uh, durable scale, right? Casting spells, you know what I'm saying? 
Oh, while we're on a brief uh, digression here, too, on uh, these alternate reality games and so forth, here was another interesting little antidote I saw about the Moorish Orthodox Church. This was the later incarnation that uh, one of the schisms from Moorish science that Hakim Bey had uh, kind of revived uh, first, I think, around 65, and then he got it going again when he came back from Iran in the early 80s. Um but anyway, uh, uh, this is, uh, again, from Michael Muhammad Knight's uh, William S. Burroughs versus the Quran. Uh, quote, the Moorish Orthodox Church is an example of what Hakim Bey calls, quote, free religion, small, self-created, half-serious slash half-fun cults. Apart from a shared sensibility, each chapter of the church remains self-defined, even creating its own rituals. Members and Taoists observe April 23rd as the Feast of the Green Man. In honor of Kadir, Islam's patron saint of cannabis. Yeah. Green man is really big in this kind of stuff. Uh, in the uh, Moorish Orthodox Church, that is because of the connection it has to cannabis, allegedly, and some Islamic traditions. Uh, that's my digression, by the way. Continuing with night. Some church members give themselves quirky names, like Ibn Lahab, Flambe, and Dionysus Bey, claim meaningless titles such as Sufi Abdul of Antarctica, and represent made-up factions like the Moorish Black Guard or Mosque of the Seven Eyes, and directing inquiries for further information to non-existent addresses in non-existent towns of Ongshat, home of Almont College and Hakim Bay Diocese Theological Seminar. So yeah, there was a lot of this also, like the Ongshat stuff grafted into the Moorish Orthodox churches and so forth. And um, also interestingly enough, in the first Sinister Forces book, Peter Lavenda lists Michael Itkin as being the bishop of the church of ong's hat if i remember correctly <laughs> so it actually got to be the bishop of ong's hat of all so it it sounds like you're describing the this Moorish orthodox church almost like a <clears throat> next generation wandering bishop project it's got a lot of you know similarities it's got some wandering bishops with a line going all the way back to the old Catholic Church in America. Oh yeah. Well, if you know some and, of the characters, but, these... oh, go ahead, Keith. But but they're but it's but it what is it? It sounds like an independent church, but you know, with an Islamic um, mm -hmm. foundation rather than Christian, kind of like the Shriners versus the Masons kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But functionally, kind of the same thing with some of the same um, structure you know, to it and even cross pollination with the wider world of uh, independent churches. So, you know, cause like you got wandering bishops. Well, what are they going to be the, 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 the bishops of, they're going to be bishops of wandering churches. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what I mean? You know, you also got to kind of remember, I mean, a lot of these wandering bishops are doing these sort of uh, almost world building exercises and mythos. I mean, obviously, you know, I kind of got into it earlier, but Michael Bertrio, I mean, he was a big part of building up that whole, you know, magical mythos around Lovecraft's fiction, which has just become so huge now. And, um, oh gosh, I, I, I Charles Pitchell, I, I emphasize the green man stuff for a reason. There's another, um, 
wandering bishop who goes by the name of alan greenfield who's had a bit of fun with the green man over the years i'll just leave it at that anyway uh sam you've seen base history as a kind of hyperstition can you define the concept uh for us and how you see it as relating to Bay's work um sure so i mean you've talked about a lot on your show but just to kind of sum up um hyperstition is the, is the use of fiction um any kind of magical means to manifest a reality. And um, Hakim Bey was very much believed in the, the magical power of the word. He wrote about it quite a bit, in fact. Um, yeah, Hermes um, being the, the god of language. I mean, he, he had one book, Green Hermeticism, um, which I guess is a more ecological take on, on Hermeticism, but I mean, just to point out that he was very much into Hermes, the power of language and, and how it can shape reality. And there's numerous uh, texts he wrote. I just got to interject. That's actually also too, I mean, a major component of magic in and of itself. It sort of goes into the, uh, the phrase abracadabra actually, which yeah. is an karmic <laughs> expression, I believe. Uh, As I speak, I create, I believe. Yeah, I was gonna exactly. say this, this is wizard stuff. It is truly, and I mean, I think yeah, Keith and I kind of fell under under his spell. I mean, I, probably thousands, tens of thousands of people have. I mean, he he did have a way with words. He had a way of conjuring worlds um, that were somewhat believable, imaginal spaces that that you can um, you can kind of you know, catapult yourself into and imagine occurring. I mean, Ong's hat is maybe the most uh, uh, clear example of that. You know, I think he was, he was very much, I think it was based on, on an essay he wrote. Is that right? Yes, I believe the initial essay for it was uh, Hakeem Bey's. It's it's been a bit of a dispute. I mean, it's generally agreed mm -hmm. that Joseph Metheny was like the main driving oh, force. Yeah. I think Bey tried to make it seem like he had mostly dropped out after the uh, essay was completed. But, but that, I don't yeah, know that... based on what I'm kind of seeing, though, around the whole thing with, uh, you know, that essay and going to Croton. And then, mm -hmm. you know, really, you also you could kind of throw it in the context of what was going on with the Dreamtime Village in 1991 one two because again this is smack dab in the middle of this whole area i mean he's trying to create i mean a whole just i mean almost cult around yeah and you know a lot of a lot of the stuff that that he wrote that i would call hyperstitional um very much harkens back to a writer i dearly love um uh, jorge luis borges um the argentinian writer he, he was well known for writing these pieces that um, came off as nonfiction, but they were completely made up. Um, he would even reference books in, in, you know, these short stories that were fictional books. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're fascinating to read. I mean, it, 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 uh, it's easy to read something like that and, and think it's um, nonfiction. Also, when you write it in an academic way, like Borges did, like like Peter Lamborn Wilson does with these things, um, one, one kind of obscure one that people might not know about that I'll, I'll bring up is called, it's an essay called Visit Port Watson, and it was in this uh, amazing collection by uh, published by Semiotext. And it, it, the title was just SF, uh, short for science fiction, um, but it was kind of a who's who cast of, of, of characters in it. It had 
Robert Anton Wilson, it had uh, William Gibson, it had J.G. Ballard, um, and yeah, Peter Lamborn Wilson had two essays in it, but one was anonymous, and it was called Visit Port Watson. It was this completely um, fictional tale of this place that exists that people can go to. He gave coordinates, and yeah, it was it, of course it was completely made up, but I think it it went uh, somewhat viral. People were trying to find out where this place was and um, people believed it was real. You know, that's, that's just one example of many. Uh, another, another one I find interesting, and this harkens back to his kind of traditionalist um, Blavatskyan um, beliefs, but he, he wrote an obscure tract called the Atlantis Manifesto, um, which I think I haven't actually read it. I've read about it. And my sense is that he was just kind of trying to encourage that people conjure their own Atlantis, you know, and this very much falls in line with um, his idea for a temporary autonomous zone. Yeah, like Keith said, it's it's this very bizarre syncretic um, ideology where you can kind of, it's utilitarian. You can kind of pick and choose as you need to to self mythologize, you know, to create this um, imaginal space where you can live out your um, dreams, you know, whether they be heretical or perverse. Usually, in his case, <laughs> um, in in some of the um, uh, the Moorish stuff that he'd written, you know, he quotes uh, noble Drew Ali: uh, "Every man his own vine and fig tree." Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, there's a couple books of, of theory fiction or hyperstitional tracks, I would say, um, all totally in the line of Borges and, and, and things. But one is called False Documents. You know, right, right, right out, he's telling you, you know, this is fiction, but it's like he also wants you to kind of um, entertain it, you know, as being... Um, possible reality you know and the other one was called night market noodles and it was just these short stories um mostly set in kind of a post-apocalyptic setting um but yeah just kind of fever dreams of of this kind of decadent though weirdly traditional world that he liked to um exist in and so it was, you know, and that was really very much my sense about like going to Croatan too, because I mean, with that introduction, you know, at the beginning, I mean, they almost kind of acknowledge the Ben Ishmael thing as a, uh, a, you know, a theory fiction, essentially. And then, you know, after that, though, they do have a couple of very scholarly essays in there, um, you know, on very legitimate subjects like the Seminoles and so forth, which uh, Keith had uh, pointed out. Um, but snuck into there is some is some is some shenanigans is some spell casting yeah, well, right another yeah. here i am giving you all this effusive praise and talking about what a profound impact this book had on my brain and um, it's like yeah that's actually that was a that was another spell like okay well i mean <laughs> and another i gotta point this out to another interesting contributor to this book as i had almost forgotten here was a guy called darren s uh Wessler hyphen Henry, um, who eventually became a professor, I believe, at Concordia. He's actually quite a nice gentleman and had a few correspondences with him. Um, but he wrote a publication that went out in the zines back in the late 80s that's uh, become semi-legendary called Virus 23. 
it uh you know got drifted in the cyber culture it spread over the years and it eventually became uh sort of a basis for an arg called the game 23 uh which subsequently is really tied into a lot of uh pretty incredible stuff that's one of the ones i'm going to get into in my um forthcoming book that i've been working on in q anon but it's uh interesting to see that he was also a contributor here his uh one uh, essay that he put uh, return from without louis riel and the liminal space yeah so he's got this very interesting postmodern take of the metis in there that's also kind of interspersed with some of these more scholarly essays on the um the histories of some of these different indigenous peoples so it's very fascinating. And I mean, another guy, he's not in going to Croatan, but he was a member of the Moorish Orthodox Church and had worked with Hakim Bey a lot over the years was Bill Weinberg. Another guy like in the Discordian milieu and what have you, he wrote for High Times for a lot of years, all this other kind of stuff. But he's actually known more for his scholarly works. Um, he's actually the guy who wrote Homage to the Chipas, I believe. Uh, is that the correct pronunciation, Keith? Chiapas. Chiapas, yeah. Homage to the Chiapas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In general, he's considered to be one of the major authorities on contemporary indigenous struggles uh, in Latin America. He's a bloody Discordian, essentially. Uh, Contemporary of Hakim Bey's and, you know, again, and part of this, you know, whole milieu around the Moorish Orthodox Church and what have you. It's, It's just this is a whole component of this that is just never really been looked at. And again, you know, this is something we're going to get into more throughout this series. This, you know, kind of thing has a rich legacy in this country of these different groups trying to build their own mythologies out of these indigenous traditions. And in some cases they've just totally made up. You know, this isn't an isolated incident, and even arguably the use of stories and so forth has been going on for a while in some of these mystical circles as well, which we'll explore. But I mean, I, you know, I can't emphasize this enough, you know, I mean, there's just, there's been a lot of incredible stuff done with these indigenous traditions by some of these various groups to just totally pervert and distort the history of this land. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's not uh, strictly an American thing. You know, the whole Rene Le Chateau thing, for example, I mean, just to, just to pick one, don't let me digress on it. But, you know, this whole like nurtured mythology that Jesus is going to come back and surprise, surprise, he's going to be a French Catholic that's going to like unite the world, especially Europe. You know, that's kind of what that all thing was about. It was it was like some Le Cirque, Joseph de Maestri. <laughs> <laughs> just some weird French Catholic shenanigans, but it had to do with, you know, uh, the past as a contested space. Um, the Corpus Hermeticum was discovered, you know, rediscovered and thought to be, you know, dating from ancient, ancient time immemorial. And then it was later determined to be, you know, written 300s AD, you know. But they had, but in, you know, in these books, these pseudepigrapha, you know, writing under pen names, you mm-hmm. know, the book, the book of Moses, and, and the book of Abraham, and, and with the Mormon Church, you know, the 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 whole thing of like pen names and saying, really, Hermes said this, you know, like the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were supposed to be written by Moses, but he like dies, 
in the middle of it and the book keeps going so it's like well wait a minute you know <laughs> again man abracadabra abracadabra <laughs> they sneak it in all the time i mean you always think mm -hmm. it's like silly i mean when you see it in the kids cartoons and what have you but they're telling you right there as i speak yeah. i create all right yeah. so while we're on that note um so few people have explored the depths of the cultic milieu uh, to the extent as bay as I hope this presentation is illustrated. Uh, it seems like he dabbled in every mystical tradition there is at one time or another, as Keith has so elegantly summed up for us. Sam, you see this as part of an effort to co-opt many of these traditions, right? Yeah, you know, I, I would say so. I, I would say it's a kind of grab bag, um, melangerie of of. of yeah kind of bits of all these traditions that suit his interests and and like i said they're usually heretical they're usually perverse they're usually um yeah centered on kind of um sensual pleasure i would say indulgence um yeah very very kind of um transgression transgression yeah, transgression um yeah, kind of uh, unrepentant um, indulgences in, in any number of things. It kind of reminds me of Bataille, you know, the kind of excess. I think that was very much a, a part of um, what he picked from all these various traditions. But um, yeah, it did seem disingenuous. I, I would like to, I would like to hear people who grew up in, in these traditions he, he kind of co-opted speak on it because yeah, I, I think he did so disingenuously. He he cherry picked what he wanted. He he usually chose the heretics. Um, yeah, and and kind of had this coterie of heretical um, chieftains, like he perceived himself to be a part of. You know, it's it's this. Um, uh, he, I'm not part of any one tradition. All of us heretics exist. You know, in our own kind of imaginal liminal space. And, and we're chaos magicians and we can take and please from traditions as we wish, as long as they suit our, you know, our aim toward, um, yeah, endless pleasure. And, and uh, yeah, it, it is fascinating. No, I mean, he, he chose some good ones, I will say. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Taoism. I've gotten a lot from that tradition. And, and he wrote um, quite a bit on Taoism and and certain Taoist ideas, one of which I really liked was aimless wandering, this idea of just traveling without a plan and, and just seeing what kind of pops up, you know, that's something I've actually taken some value in. So, so I, I don't mean to say, you know, everything he wrote is, is without value because I think that's the trick, right? Is, is he, he is able to woo you, but it's just like, you know, where, where is he leading you to? Like, what grabs you and then what happens next you know what i mean you got to be really careful with a character like bay because often he's leading to you know some pine barren airstream trailer where he's got a few runaway boys and he wants you to join in on the fun yikes yeah to put it mildly <laughs> uh keith what's your take on this well, I, I was nodding a lot with, uh, with what you were just saying, Sam, you know, um, you know, the whole anarchy, I mean, he was an anarchist, so yeah, it was going to be about, and, and he was a tantric, 
you know, the, among his many initiations and things that he sought out was, was, was Tantra, that whole Cali thing. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of his politics are kind of like a political or poetic Tantra in a way. There's a lot in Tantra that involves transgression, you know, an inversion of, of society's norms and whatever. And uh, those kind of charismatic experiences. Like I was listening to an interview he gave with somebody in France, you know, just a few hours ago before we did this. And uh, they were talking about two people. It, the guy had referenced a Bible verse. Jesus said, you know, whenever two or more are, whenever two people or more are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Right. He's like, that's the third thing. You know, what is that third thing? The, the, the Taz will give you the third thing, ideally. You know, the magic that's greater than the sum of its parts, the happening that's bigger than the people participating in it. And, you know, it would be a sort of a, ideally a charismatic experience. It's obvious uh, that that was Bay's, you know, predilection. A lot of things wrapped up in charismatic experiences and people are transgressive experiences and people. Charismatic people are boundary violators, you know, to use the title of one of his essays. I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of rambling here, but it was, if, if I was going to say his, his, his ideology summed up in one word, liberation and anarchy, you know, well then that's, that's often the watchword for what uh, you get in Tantra as opposed to regular exoteric, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, instead of going through successive reincarnations and become enlightened over time you go for liberation and achieve it in one lifetime, you know, and that's going to involve a lot of transgression. It's going to, and those are charismatic experiences. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's cultivation of that through the the whole Taz thing. Um, The, 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 the gone to Croatan and and some of the, the, the seductive qualities of his writings in general, you know, have that spark and some of that those critiques and stuff i'm reading this week some of them hold up pretty good i mean the man mm-hmm. was brilliant you know what i'm That's saying true. i can't yeah uh you know it it invites it it, it violates boundaries you know like slipping in this his little freaking nambla fortune cookies in the whole damn thing for example you know and daring you to keep reading you know that's that's him getting in your head you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so anyway the question was about subverting ideologies or, or uh, uh, changing, you know, the, uh, adopting these things in order to subvert them. It's like that charismatic event horizon is, is like the, the breakdown of, of all boundaries. You know, that's, that's anarchy and the guy's an anarchist. So, you know, what you're getting isn't, you know, it's not like he's not known for it. So clearly, you know, the targets of a lot of his uh, poetic terrorism manifestos were the system, global capitalism, globalism. He had an essay called Against Multiculturalism. Um, and he just favored, you know, throwing a brick through the window of a bank. <laughs> Whatever. Good enough. You know what I mean? Like just every everywhere at, at all levels, just just resist the whole thing. Um, you know, I like the critiques that people make a lot of times better than I like their idea of what a solution is, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But those critiques hold up pretty good. Uh, But anyway, back to something like gone to Croton, if it really was some pseudepigrapha, 
you know, taking poetic license. I mean, what the hell do you expect a guy to do? It does not surprise me at all, Recluse, that you're saying that. That's funny. Um, you know, what is it to do? It's transgressive. It's, 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 it's violating the boundaries of, of normal history. It's, it's breaking down. It's an occult assault on institutions. You know, America's institution of how we think of ourselves as a nation or whatever. You know what I mean? It's freaking voodoo. Uh, so, and the guy was <laughs> an accomplished, you know, wizard. So being all up in that Ong's hat type milieu and maybe it's part of their same little zine zeitgeist at the time, it makes total sense. And so we talked about before mentioned the Chaz thing in Seattle, right? Where they had the thing in 2020 with all the protests and stuff. And there was like a declared, was it Central Heights Autonomous Zone? Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill. There mm -hmm. you go. Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, right? So, you know, the ideas persist. And how does it manifest? You know, I know some of it manifested with Occupy Wall Street. I know Hakeem Bay's name was passing a few lips during that period, I'm sure, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, but here are some people years later, you know, adopting the, the term that Hakeem Bay, by the way, said, I didn't invent the Taz or the concept of the Taz. It's an emergent thing in human culture. And I just happened to give it the word that everybody now uses that he said that in one of his interviews. Mm -hmm. So he's like, it's an emergent thing. It's not something I invented. It's something I identified. And it's it's never not been there. It's never not going to be there in human culture. But anyway. Um, I don't know where I was <laughs> <laughs> dissolving, dissolving those boundaries so that liberation could happen. That would serve that purpose. The, the, the anarchy essays, the, the alternative space for your imagination to imagine a different America that's opened up in something like gone to Croatan. You could say it's same purpose in a way. If you're in Hakeem Bay and you're involved in it, you know, you know, you could also throw in rainbow gatherings, Grateful mm -hmm. Dead shows and fish shows, you know, um, a little ideological reinforcement of the North American dropout culture. You know, those things are kind of subversive in their in their own way, or they just refuse Nick's, you could say, which is a, a species in the same general family. More of an impact, like you said. He's he's uh, he's supposed to be fringe because uh, Sam, you're saying he's supposed to be seen as a fringe guy because that's part of the shtick. But it reminds me of a a quote Kurt Vonnegut had said. It's in one of his essay books, Palm Sunday, or the other one um, that him and Allen Ginsberg were being recognized for some kind of award, literary award or something. And some reporter had said, you know, how does it feel to have two anti-establishment literary figures such as yourself, Mr. Vonnegut and Allen Ginsberg, you know, to be getting this award like this. And Vonnegut replied to her uh, or him or whoever it was, you know, if, if we aren't the establishment, I don't know what is, <laughs> wow. you know? So yeah, as a fringe figure that was famous for being a fringe figure, but you can see the influence today even in that traditionalist critique about the myth of progress or the illusion of progress I was alluding to, it just, it just sounds like it, you know, <clears throat> cause it's got that traditionalist thread running through it. 
you know, you can pick that out of his, his stuff. And that guy doesn't even have to give Hakeem Bay any credit for it. They just are drinking from the same well on a certain level. So it's just interesting. That's probably enough out of me. I don't know. That was well said, Keith. Mm-hmm. All right. To wrap up, Sam, do you have any more anecdotes uh, with Adam Parfrey or anything else relating to Bay uh, in relation to Bay? Sure um, after, so, um, yeah, Adam um, did not want to accept uh, his pro-pedophilia pro rants. And so in, in place, he, he got Bob Black to be his co-contributor. And I think after that, um, he, him and Peter lost communication. Adam left New York in the late 80s. And I reached out to Peter to see if he wanted to contribute to this book. And he, he gave a kind no. So, um, yeah, I, I think they didn't really correspond after that. I think it is interesting, you know, they had, um, yeah, divergent paths. Although, like I said, this, this latest book of his, The New Nihilism, I see a lot of, um, a lot of ideas that Parfrey and company were, were toying with even back then, coming back around with this new nihilism where he's, you know, more or less um, siding with the traditionalists and, and even the new right, I would say, at least in terms that it is resisting something um, that he's, he deems needs resisting, which is, you know, globalism, liberalism. The great, the great reset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, oh it's strange God, to really. see him kind of resurrect <clears throat> this language. Um, yeah, but not if you not if you not if you pay attention to that traditionalist thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he critiqued capitalism quite a bit. And he hung out with lefties, sometimes extreme lefties quite a bit. And he mm-hmm. hung out with all kinds of people. Right. But yeah, that the, the there's a there's a strong critique of capitalism amongst the right that you don't hear about in America as much, but Mm -hmm. you know, the, the ABN anti-Bolshevik block of nations manifesto had called for a pox on communism and capitalism. This is in the forties, you know, cause if you're traditionalist, yeah, I was going to say in general, anti-modern Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were as anti-capitalist as they were anti-communist. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's often like glossed over, but I mean, if Oli, I mean, despised American style capitalism, I mean, you scarcely saw it as any better if any is uh, Soviet communism. Mm -hmm. Revolt against the modern world. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely, that, that there's definitely that subtext in his stuff and he's, he's not wrong. (laughs) <laughs> right yeah i know that's the thing it's like you really can uh, you know nod your head along to a lot of it but you know when you learn he was um in iran like directly working for <laughs> um the shah essentially and you know one thing i'd be remiss if i didn't mention adam claimed that peter in new york was getting funding from iran still i can't confirm that adam claimed that and i don't you know it doesn't seem like something he would lie about um, and I wouldn't be surprised because given all the traveling Peter did, you know, on, uh, you know, profits from an anti-copyright book, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> he was getting the money from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting thing. And then the fact that, I mean, the Mellon family seems to turn up a lot in some of the circles that he was like traveling in as well. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I bought, of- I bought Taz, so... 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I contributed to some plane ticket somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Congratulations, man. It's um, like a like a buck or something. You know? Right, you know, right. I, and like one other thing, you know, here before we wrap up, but while we're on the topic of Adam Parfer, I mean, there's also, I kind of think the element of Adam in some ways kind of also do, trying to do some of the same things that uh, Bay was doing in terms of building like a mythos up. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thinking here specifically in the context of, um, you know, the whole thing with James Shelby Downard and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, certainly Adam really did a lot to get all that going with, uh, you know, King Kill 33 and all this other stuff. I mean, Grimstead and uh, uh, Hoffman had tried to generate interest in this stuff with Downard for a few years. They had approached Robert Anton Wilson, among others, but um, it really wasn't uh, until Adam had uh, kind of gotten into the, uh, into the picture that things really took off. And um it's really interesting too i think later with him publishing um downard's biography and you know interestingly enough too um you know we're going to get into some of the masonic forgeries uh in the next installment in this uh we're going to look at some of the stuff that paul stewart has done and i uh, was recently leading the bill uh his book on the uh the bill uh bail forgery i believe that's how it's pronounced but it's really fascinating because of how in um you know stewart's sort of interpretation of the ciphers there how the dates are seemingly wrong in um the whole uh letter the bail letter that was like left supposedly with this sort of treasure hunt in it which again another sort of game concept as well which is yeah another, in other well. words none of this is new right but yeah 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 but it's also interesting in light of the downard bio because one of the things i mean a lot of people notice about the downard uh or excuse me it'd be autobiography wouldn't it um well regardless anyway the downard book carnival of uh, the carnivals of life and death i think it is uh, one yeah. of the things about it that everybody you know kind of points out is how the dates are really wonky and it like you know he talks about uh for instance like fdr i think being the president around the time of the first world war mm. so anyway like after you know going through some of uh, the stuff Stuart is getting into with the bail letters i mean i almost have started to wonder if the uh the downard bio is a kind of uh cipher almost you know with some of the misspellings and uh the mm. incorrect dates and all this other kind of stuff because this is exactly the kind of thing that Hoffman and Grimstead were really obsessed with. I could certainly have seen them looking a lot at the the bail letters. I mean, the title alone would have fascinated them. Um, you know, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, the one thing about the Carnivals of Life and Death is is the one who would have been doing that is largely Alana Freeland. Um, from Hoffman's own words, um, he was actually really upset with with how how much Ilana edited Shelby Downer's material. So, um, yeah, she, and that she, is and that is kind of the question too, because I Adam was the one though who brought Ilana in, though, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it also sort of begs the question: Was there always the cipher there? Did I mean, if there is one, is it possibly mm-hmm. somebody added? But I mean, yeah, it's um. It's an aspect okay. about that that I don't think a lot of people have considered, but I do wonder if there was meant to be some kind of hidden code in there. It does seem like the exactly the kind of thing that would be thrown in with the downard mythos, man. I mean, yeah, Adam was definitely a fan of literary hoaxes and did a fair number of them. And uh, 
Yeah, I document most of them in the book. Um, speaking of, of codes and ciphers, one I'll just mention he did for another book, um, which is really funny. I, I, you know, um, in in my opinion, maybe not others, but in Secret and Suppressed 2, on uh, the cover, I think there was Al Alistair Crowley was on the cover, and they, were, they did this like special gloss on the cover to where if you like, if you turn the book a certain way, um, it will show 666 on Crowley's head, but it, it's not there if you just look at it straight on. Um, so yeah, Adam was a big fan of that, of inserting things into his book. So I, I wouldn't put it past him. Um, but, you know, just ab about America's contested past, I will say if, if uh, Adam did it, an exhaustive book on, on the history of fraternal yeah, orders America. in America, which is pretty impressive. And Yeah, uh, no, that's what I was like kind of thinking, because, I mean, on the one hand, you have Ritual America, which, you know, really is a very scholarly account. It's pretty on, honest. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fraternal orders. I mean, you know, it's you know, it has legitimate criticism against groups like the Shriners and what have you without going overboard into a lot of the fanatical conspiracy theories and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, he's also kind of going around doing stuff like you know i mean kind of proponing the james shelby downer thing so it's it's very interesting i mean he's almost kind of a mirror in some ways of um hakeem bay alias peter lamborn wilson um mm -hmm. and just you know sort of the, some of the stuff that he's been doing that uh we've talked about over the course of this yeah so, absolutely yeah all right so one final thing too i don't mean to keep dragging this out but i, I had a question about uh, this whole thing with bay too in the context of what we kind of think is probably a more prevalent influence traditionalism has had on him than what a lot of people realize as well is his sort of uh you know his presence in this whole discordian milieu and so forth so would Peter Lamborn Wilson have viewed Hakeem Bey as a character that he was playing? What do you think, Sam? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, it does seem to be like a, a literary invention, you know, of his own. And yeah, if, I, you know, if you if you compare contrast books he wrote under Hakeem Bay versus Peter Lamborn Wilson. I mean, yes, there's similarities, but there is something about the books by Hakeem Bay that have this extra kind of gravitas or, um, yeah, um, fire, I would say. Like, um, I think I mentioned earlier, it seemed to be like Hakeem Bay was this um, avatar of his, you know, because, you know, in this book, New Nihilism, he, he actually has some anecdotes about he tried how he tried to make some bombs in the 60s, but failed. And I find that interesting. It's almost like Hakeem Bey is this um, literary fiction of his where he actually did go out and do these terroristic acts. But interestingly, you know, there's no examples of Hakeem Bey going out there throwing bricks at banks. He's just writing things. He's just telling people to paste up um, child porn, you know, <laughs> like I, I find it, it is an interesting kind of um, uh, hyperstition of its own, this character of his that, um, yeah, it seems kind of, it's interesting. It's like a wish fulfillment. 
he like then sort of like further like you know inserts the Hakeem Bay you know persona character whatever into the, like Ong's hat is the uh the professor I think that actually started the um the astrum there at Ong's hat New Jersey or something like that so because mm-hmm. Moorish science is also like incorporated really heavily into um the Ong's hat storyline and that kind of thing so yeah it was his like priest name I think it was his way of christening himself as the sacred holy yep. character i mean he yep. he was a total narcissist you know really i mean it, it's it's so much more than just a forgery and an assumed name it's it's more of a assuming the god form mm-hmm. you know and it's a delivery device it, it's yoga it, on a certain level it's a delivery device for a stochastic well, because it's just interesting. Sarcastic, you know, poetic terrorism. Because yeah, making, like you said, he makes you do it. He doesn't have to do it. It's like he's the uh, radio uh, Rwanda. Yeah. It's almost, <laughs> you know like what I mean? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like the reverse of what uh, was it, Gene, Ganon? I, I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation of that, was advocating, like where you had, you know, you had to live the exterior life of a devout, devout uh, Jew or Muslim or Christian or something like that, and then sort of have the esoteric stuff and this sort of like hidden inner world and in Bay's case it's almost like uh the the polar opposite where he's more the the really crazy stuff on the outside but I mean when you sort of look at like you're kind of saying like the Peter Lamborn who actually existed in the real world I mean he comes off as really being a very conservative you know uh you know Uh I mean not very flesh I mean yeah he traveled a lot and what have you like you're saying he's not going out and throwing like a lot of bricks or anything like that windows (laughs) yeah essentially keith you're right he's a scholar but in that book by muhammad knight he talks about being in his house and how it was kind of gross and disgusting how how he kind of started to view peter as kind of essentially a lazy slob who just laid around and read and write so that sounds like an anarchist to me (laughs) i don't know you know like i don't know you you work to cast this check from Iran again, I guess. Yeah, bring me back and bring me back some ding dong <laughs> or Jiffy cake mix, whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, delivery device for stochastic poetic terrorism. My goodness. Yeah, yeah, it's the man versus the image, and and he was all about the image as much as he 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 railed against it. You know, he was very effective in using it the image was a uh, territory in a psychic war that could be seized and uh, weaponized against the enemy. Mm-hmm. The power of the image is very, very big. So it's true. And, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. Is the message. Oh, nice. You know, uh, are we, are we wrapping up here? Yeah. 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 Do you have any like closing thoughts, Keith? I, you know, I, I guess my, you know, I'm, I've looked at these YouTube videos and, and, um, and listen to him talk and stuff. Like I said, I didn't realize, like I said, I haven't thought about this guy in a long time. Right. But, uh, um, there's comments on the YouTube videos over the last few weeks saying rest in peace and, you know, great man, this and that, you know, there's a lot of comments, uh, acknowledging his passing on these YouTube videos. So you can see the influence there because these are old videos. These are not, you know, none of this, it's not recent stuff. It's from, it's people talking about what do you think the impact of this internet stuff's going to be, you know? And he's like, ah, eh, yeah, whatever. Capitalism's just going to ruin it. Like I think I said, 
you know, and people were talking about it being the space for liberation and everything. And he's, and, and now look at it. It's a prison, you know, the image, the Twitter, the, the whatever it's just bars on on a prison video but in these videos it's it's the 90s so there's all this optimism about the world wide web and stuff and he's talking about it because somehow he's affiliated with cyber culture <laughs> in liberty you know and he and he was pushing back on it in multiple interviews like i you know i never got online i never blah 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 anyway uh i i guess none of that's the point just to get back to it you know there's people commenting about it videos that are old so you can see that uh, you can you can see that there. People are going to remember him in all kinds of different ways. I was a big fan. I was under the spell. It was this big Peter Pan thing, uh, and, and now he's dead. So <laughs> he's off to Never Never Land with uh, the Lost uh, Boys, man. I'm sure he's uh, smiling about that one. Yeah, indeed. Peter Lamborn Wilson may have died, but I, I do think he was right. Chaos never died. In fact, things seem more chaotic now than than perhaps ever. So oh, he, he was right. Uh, I think that's a good note to uh, wrap things up on. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. It's been a, a great chat. Uh, I definitely think this has accomplished the purpose of uh, presenting a very contrarian view of uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson, alias Hakeem Bey. Hey guys, this is a, a quick postscript that I wanted to throw in here. Uh, it had been kind of driving me nuts, the name of uh, James uh, Keyline. I do believe that is how it's pronounced. Probably wrong, but it's my best interpretation at this point. As you may recall, he was one of the co-editors of Going to Croton and one of the individuals who I think might have written the extended essay in the Ben Ismail tribe. Anyway, uh, and then it finally occurred to me where I'd seen the name before. I went back to Michael Kinsella's brilliant legend tripping online, Supernatural Folklore and the Search for Ong's Hat, uh, the best account so far of Ong's Hat online. And sure enough, I found a reference to Keyline there. So this is taken from page 84 of that particular work. It goes, in the New World Disorder magazine interview, Joseph Metheny said that four people were instrumental in the construction and distribution of the initial Incubalia papers. Uh, by the way, that's one of the uh, kind of catalog things that I talked about uh, that Ong's Hat was built around as a side note. Anyway, returning to the text. While I have mentioned three experts that fit well within Metheny's descriptions, the fourth is most likely the artist James Keyline, who designed the cover of the original Incubalia Abula, a catalog. Keyline, an anarchist and surrealist college artist, has long been a presence within the male art movement and has his works appear within a number of CDs, books, and magazines that are part of the counterculture milieu, especially those published by I don't know, media. Hmm. Keyline also provided the illustration for the cover based Taz and edited the book Going to Croton. A historical <laughs> examination of North American autonomous communities. So there you go. Keyline, one of the co-editors of Going to Groton, also appears to have been directly involved in the Ong's Hat alternate reality game, the pioneering one. So that's another uh, interesting thing to throw in there uh, with the ongoing associations in that particular work. And again, emphasizes some of the uh, different methods used to try and reimagine America's past. 
it's just sort of one modern manifestation of this. We're going to look at how other groups throughout history have tried to use similar methods for the same, well, not the same, but similar ends. Anyway, back to your regularly scheduled wrap up. All right, guys. Well, as always, I thank you all so much for listening and for your support. And with that, I say to you, as always, good night and good luck to you all.